Welcome to the Late Night with Chalky podcast. I'm Jay Late Night Larson. And I'm Lyndon Chalky Cabellion. In each episode, we will be talking to different surfers and surf shops to learn more about them and their passion for surfing. We will be diving deep into their experiences as well as their involvement and contributions to their local communities. Be sure to check out our website and Instagram feed for updates on future shows. Thank you for your support and we look forward to sharing these great stories with you. Before we start the show, a word from our sponsors. Yeah, Lyndon, we got sponsors these days. That's right, buddy. Let's do this. The official wax sponsor of the Late Night with Chalky podcast is... Boo Wax. The best wax in the game. Sticky icky. If you go to your local surf shop and they don't have it, demand demand it. it. It's the best. Next up is... Dash Mortgage. For what? All your lending needs. Refi, home loan, new home purchase, equity line. They're your go-to mortgage institution. What? What's their phone number? 714-784-5736. That is 714-784-5736. Dash Mortgage. Okay. Where do we like to eat? Oh, our good friends own an insane southwestern Mexican restaurant called Caliente Sizzling Hot. What's their phone number? Caliente Costa Mesa 949-515-0909. They have a store, restaurant, front. They cater. They have the goods for small parties, corporate parties, events, and just insane good food. And if you're going to Nicaragua, where do you go? Mark and Dave's. Mark and Dave's. Markanddaves.com. Friends and family, brothers and sisters, welcome to the Late Night with Chalky podcast. Welcome. Yeah, we're here with a man of many talents, a skater, an artist, a designer, co-founder of Fat Farm, brand creator, mastermind of Shutskate and Zoo York. Yep. Music, movie director, writer, 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 and editor at Up Rocks Style, and a very cool dude who rips... At surfing and is our good friend. Well, thanks. I don't Eli rip Gessner. Eli Morgan Gessner. Morgan. Eli oh, sorry. Morgan Gessner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Morgan. Yes, that's the full name. AKA Ocularge. AKA Ocularge. Yep. And, and um, before we get to Ocularge, mm. you're from New York. Born and raised in New York City, yes. Okay. Yeah. On a surf show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so t- tell us, you know, let's start from the beginning. How old were you? You know, you're. Skater, first yeah, and foremost. For sure, yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, uh, you know, so I was born and raised in New York City, but my my father's from Cape Cod. Our okay. family's like one of the, like, in the beginning of America, like on the Mayflower docket, or one of the early settlers in America. Was it yeah. Well, no, it was the it was a, a Winslow is a Winslow. my my nice. grandma. Yeah. yeah. So we have uh, we I, in Cape Cod we had Gessner Road. And we've had it since, you know, (laughs) the beginning of wherever. My dad built like a summer house there and we had, we led a lifeguard, this guy named Lee the lifeguard. And he was like a professional lifeguard at Nauset Beach and he surfed. 
So when I was a little kid, there was a surfboard that was in our house. And I was always trying to like, let me try this. But I was, I'm talking like I'm three years old. Yeah. So he would take me out. So our house had access to the ocean, but it was like in an inlet, you know? Mm-hmm. I guess sort of like how you guys have in Huntington Beach, right? You The ocean lets into those little yeah. back harbor, harbor yeah. things. So it was yeah. like that. But it like totally remote, just like pine trees. So you were exposed to the beach atmosphere and yeah. the surf. At an early age. At an early age. So you, you might even start to, trying to do surfing before skateboarding yeah for sure uh and i was always like ah so they would put me in the calm water and push me around as a baby and i was like this is this is what i want to do even as a a little kid then i came uh then then i was back in new york city and uh that my mom started taking us to long beach which you guys might know and uh uh unsound surf yeah so right there i was going there since i was like eight, nine, ten years old, and when you would get off, we didn't have a car, so we'd take the subway to the LIRR and then go to the beach, and right where the, you, you guys might know Gino's Pizzeria, is like the famous pizza spot right yeah. there. So right next to Gino's in the 70s was a surf shop, and it had all like the airbrushed dolphins and like all that stuff, and all I wanted was a surfboard, but my birthday is in August. So I would like beg my mom all summer, like, for my birthday present, get me a surfboard. And she was like, you know, what are you going to do with this thing? Yeah, like, you, you can only ride the... it a couple months out of the year. Exactly. Did you have friends that were surfing already? None, none. No, none. Um, and at that point in my life, I was uh, a graffiti writer. I hadn't even gotten into skateboarding. I was just sort of getting out of being a kid and... Like 13 or...? No, I started skating when I was 12. Okay. So the thing about growing up in New York, especially at that time, is that you're... So like you maybe I can imagine because I know Huntington Beach very well. I can imagine you guys go to school and then you're like, let's go to the playground. Yeah. So it's still that kind of yeah. child energy, yeah. but you're just sort of navigating between you know drug addicts and homeless and street gangs. Yeah, and and it was bad back then. It was so bad. Yeah. And but you but it's bad from an adult point of view because you're aware that maybe there's something better than this. Yeah. You know, but when you're a kid and that's just how you grow up, yeah. you know, you go to your friend's house or you'll let's go let's go play yeah. let's go play in Central Park. So we know yeah. on the way to Central Park we were gonna have to go by the projects and we would just probably let's just run, you know, and it but was But you're always with a group of kids. Like, no, no, no. In fact it was so bad, like one of the things, especially being a white kid there was, uh, you were just, it, w- it wasn't anything racial. It wasn't like, I hate white people, you yeah. know? It was just that, oh, white people have money. Yeah. So I'm more likely to get paid if I rob a white kid. Yeah. And also, they're probably not going to fight back. So uh, it was strictly a financial situation. Yeah. So what our parents would do would give us, like, whatever, would give us, like, five bucks or ten bucks. We would put it in our shoes or in our socks. Yeah. Then they'd give us mugging money, yeah. which was like three bucks you kept in your pocket. That was kind of standard procedure. Standard operating procedure. Wow. See, Lennon, you yeah. thought you had it rough in Long <laughs> Beach riding your bike. This guy had to hop on a subway. He had to go through the projects. He had to have a freaking Dude, New York, York City money when it was super gritty. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's taxi driver. Like, yeah. that's the that's what I grew You're up talking with. talking to me? Yeah, that entire, like, you know, uh, what's it called? Um, Midnight Cowboy, Taxi Driver, that, that sort of, like, is the Was era. Was it Giuliani that kind of cleaned up? I'll-
Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I'll get to that if you want me to talk about that because it's one of my favorite subjects. Okay, um, perfect. So, and, you know, and it was, and again, you know, I was, again, it's like, come here, white boy. And it was definitely like a white boy victimization thing. Yeah. But that was only as far as like, you know, uh, so I'm like, what, eight years old, and then here comes like three black or Puerto Rican kids who were like 15. Yeah. You know, I'm immediately like walking them up one way, they're coming at me, so if I cross the street or turn around and run away, they for sure know they're going to get me and they'll chase me. So then you kind of have to just be like, fuck it, all right, like, let's, I'm just going to walk through, maybe I'm going to get smacked in the head, maybe I'm going to get robbed. Yeah. And that was just, every single day was like that. So, but it wasn't... There, there was no other way of life that I knew. Yeah. This was just normal life. Yeah. And on top of that, half of my friends are black and Puerto Rican kids. Yeah. And in the neighborhood that I grew up in, it was definitely just a mixture and a melee. And it, there also, this was sort of at the beginning of hip hop and like rap is just sort of coming. Disco's dying. Yeah. But what people don't, maybe your audience might not know, but pre hip hop, New York City was like basically like gang territory. Yeah. And, and and talking like obviously you guys know probably the movie The Warriors which is sort of a Hollywood version oh, of that. Yeah. But Great movie. The, yeah. But that was like, <laughs> you know, semblance of that. Yeah. Yeah, so like there was like the uh, the Black Spades and all the other gangs and then even if you went downtown, then like the mob still ran yeah. Soho and Greenwich Village and all the mafia kids, you know, and it would all be, you know, very and, territorial. Yeah, very territorial. So that was something to be aware of, but at the same time like uh, the New York Times, everybody knows the New York Times. The back in the day, the editor of the New York Times was a guy named John McCormick, and his son went to my school. So we were like seven years old, and I vividly remember a day where there was like me, John McCormick, and my John McCormick Jr. and my friend uh, Raphael. I think it was his name, and he was like a Puerto Rican kid, and it was like the three of us playing at Riverside Park, how kids would play, running around and climbing up the thing, and yeah. let's do the tree, and plus play tag, and then we were like, oh, let's go to John's house, and I'd never been there, and so I get to the house, it looks kind of similar to my apartment building, but it's in the penthouse, and you, we went up there, and it's like a two-floor duplex apartment. With windows and everywhere. Windows everywhere, <laughs> and like he has great. like a black living maid in a, in a suit, and I'm just like, this guy's fucking rich, you know. And were you guys well off or no? No, we were like I wasn't middle poor, class? middle class. My my mother's and my my mother's uh, father owned worked for the car industry in Detroit, so they have they have money from the car industry. But my mom was sort of like 
I don't want to be in Detroit and I'm a free spirit and an artist and she moved to New York. And then also on my father's side, they're, uh, they're not, I mean, they're well off, but you know, I guess we would be like upper middle class. I definitely, I guess your perception of what's rich depends on how much money you have. Yeah. A truly wealthy person yeah. knows that I'm not rich. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to visualize how you grew up. Sure. I'm such a, uh, like, a, like it's Manhattan, a is, because you're in New York City and you're talking about projects, yeah. but then you're... Yeah, listen, the kids in the projects, and I would go to the projects, to those kids, I'm rich. Yeah, yeah. Like, some of those kids would come over to yeah. my house and whatever, I would have, like, a boombox in my room. And they're like, wow, you have a boombox? Yeah. You know? Yeah. But then you go to John McCormick's house and he is, like, a living housekeeper, yeah. you know? And, yeah. and then I meet his dad and his dad is old. Like his dad must have had this had him when he was sixty. Oof. Like, and they, I was like, "Is this your grandfather?" You know, and they're like, "Oh, this is my dad." Hello, boys. And I was like, "Okay." And then we went outside, and then we meandered to uh, Raphael's apartment, and he literally was three blocks away, but it was like in a fucked up tenement, you know, ghetto uh, yeah. building. Four people yeah. in a room. No, no, like his actually, believe it or not, like so we went from this house. Go outside, run over to this dude's house, and his mom is like, I don't know what she was, like a prostitute or a party girl, was just like wasted, drunk on the, all the shades were, you know, drawn, and like he snuck in to like steal some money from his mom so he could go get soda. So it was really this weird, diverse mishmash, you know? And that's really like one of the things that I think you know makes a new yorker is like just ride the subways because when you have everyone has to do it yeah and it's like you're next to a stockbroker you're next to a homeless guy yeah. you're next to a crazy person you're next to a housekeeper you're next to a tv broadcaster it's just a construction worker yeah. you know a mom yeah, melting pot. yeah. and yeah. so your tolerance for other people is very very high, yeah. very very low, high high, very high. You tolerate everything, yeah. you know, like like I, like what's a Hasidic Jew? Like why are all these guys dressed like this? Yeah. Yeah. You know, why or, are they wearing a exactly. Why are these, you know, honestly, I prefer. I'm glad I grew up the way I did, living mm. in Long Beach and having the cultural diversity. Yeah, and it made me, you know, way more like you said, high right. high tolerance for any kind of. It's actually it's an actually a proven yeah. thing. It, it, I forget the the actual phrase, but there is uh, there is like if you live in uh, if you're not exposed to things outside of your comfort range, yeah. you're when you're confronted with them, your your tolerance for it is very you get very yeah. hostile. Yeah, you know, and when that's you're, why Larson's hard to deal with. Sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, I found uh, high eight video footage. Of uh, I don't know high eight people. That's a really really old form of videotape. <laughs> videotape. So I sat, I found old videotape of like at Travis Marshall's house oh with like Maddie oh, and all of them, and it was someone's birthday. And I remember I'm looking at at the footage. It was one of the I think it's Neil Fenton's birthday. I think you might be right. Yeah, yeah. And it was just like all the surfers from Huntington Beach in the '90s were at the party. And I was just like looking at it. I was like, yeah, everybody's completely white. Yeah. And there was one black gay guy. That was I, me. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone loved him. He, I don't know what, where he was. I think he might have been because like a lot of those guys were models. Yeah. I think yeah. he was like somebody who like came down from L.A. or oh, something. That's funny. So b- before we jump into to the 90s. Well, skateboarding. How did I get into skateboarding? Yeah. So uh, the one thing that I could do as a kid 
is draw. I've always been really good at drawing pictures. Well, you mentioned your mom was an artist. Did your, what was my your dad name? was an artist. Art? My dad used to, was one of, was the dean of kinetic arts at the school of visual so arts. So it's in your DNA. Yeah, exactly. Every, everybody in my family was artists. My uncle uh, was in the theater. He wrote the play "You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown." And oh wow, yeah, and like worked with the the uh, children's television workshop and Sesame Street and all that stuff. Okay. So I yeah, so I grew up around all the stuff, and I had all all my friends, all my parents' friends were all artists and art teachers, yeah. and and that was uh, I was, was afforded every yeah. option to go be an artist. In fact, now that I'm you know older, getting on in my years, I realize that it had. An unintentional. This is my girlfriend, Jamie. Hi. How are you? <laughs> Am I bothering you? Do you need anything? Um, you could come in. She's sick of listening to me talk. Yeah. yeah. That's so. So yeah. So so uh, when I was a kid, and even when first, second, third, or fourth grade. I would go and I draw pictures and I got the reputation of like, oh, Eli's the best drawer in the school. Yeah. You're going to be an artist when you grow up. And I was like, okay, even the teachers like, oh, you're so talented. You're going to be an artist when you grow up. So as soon as the teacher's telling you that, you're yeah. just like, okay, fuck math. You know, yeah. like I don't need to learn any of this yeah. stuff. I just like went it and started just doing more, you know, doing art. Now, when this was going on, it was like when graffiti started appearing yeah. on the subway trains. Yeah. And, it, and you're how old? Eight, seven, eight years old, wow. and okay. and like my dad, who's like a dean from a, of an art school, he's like, how are they doing this? Like, how are they getting the murals on the trains? Are they getting paid? Is this like a something from the city to try and beautify the city? And it was a big mystery. No one understood, you know. So that was starting to happen. And yeah, it, it, it used to. When I was a little kid, there was like just spray paint and marker. They would tags. tag. They would tag like condemned buildings and old fences, but not like actual. No, like, people were like writing their name everywhere, and yeah. like you know, uh, and that was really what it was. It was gang related, you know, turf, yeah. turf related, yeah. and then also, it uh, you know, famously there's a, a. He's not the first, but the guy who gets the credit for being sort of the guy who made it popular in New York is a, a bike or a, a messenger named Taki 183. His name was yeah. Taki and he was from 183rd Street. But he would go all around the city delivering packages and then he'd just write his name every time he was on the train waiting the thing. And then sooner or later he did it so much that his name was everywhere and he got famous. Yeah. And everyone's like, who's Taki? And then yeah. every every other kid in the city was like, oh, I'm going to start doing it. And then it started turning into... Everyone's doing it. How am I going to get attention? Mine, yeah, That's yeah. like a tag from Stay High 149, who's an old friend of mine. He passed away. He's one of the original graffiti writers, and he's sort of the guy who started, did the little character, and then like he's the from Halo. Hunt, yeah, the Halo? Halo. It's like it's like the Saint. That's like the first tag he took with an acid on a piece of glass. Is it true they would try to find the most unique places to kind of one up like the competition? Like, well, he got to this. That that's Pardon? more of a current thing. Yeah. Back then, it was like everyone wanted to just do on the trains and do bigger, write their names B bigger, bigger and bigger yeah. on the train, yeah. so everyone in the city could go. They could go all city, and everyone could yeah. see it. So it, that was that was what was going on, and I kind of got sucked into that because I was uh, the best drawer at school, but I was still just a little white kid. Yeah. So like I'm I'm like nine, ten years old, and all like the fifteen and sixteen year old kids are asking me to draw characters for them that they could go put on you know uh, trains or walls handball courts so so they would ask you to design a tag 
No, like characters or pictures. Yeah. So they would. Uh, I didn't really understand how graffiti worked. Like I, uh, the name. Yeah. Idea. I was just more doing like Dungeons and Dragons comic book. And they would try to copy what you designed. Yeah, and I would give them a drawing. They'd say, "Could you do a drawing of whatever the kid wanted? Like someone, a robot that's shooting lasers." I'm like, "Okay," and I draw that, give it to them, and they go and draw. Then uh, it's a long, long story, but I uh, one of the kids in my class, his brother ended up being one of the like most famous graffiti writers in New York. Um, even to this day, he's still you know legendary. This guy named uh, uh, Doe's Green. His Dose. brother, Doe's, DB yeah. is Doe's from yeah. the Rocksteady crew. So they were my neighbors, and I went to school with his little brother. So I would like, went to, you know, and it's still like there's no subway art book. I'm just a little kid, and I go to Chris's house, and he, he shared a bedroom with Doe's. And I look in, the, he has like a subway trains of, of pieces he did. Like, uh, first of all, I'm like, oh shit, like, what are these pictures? Because they're all long. This is before. You know, when everyone only had like the the instamatic photos. Yeah, crappy. So yeah, so they would take sections, sections of, of yeah, photos. they'd take four or five photos and then cut Piece them together, together to make a, a you know one big one. Yeah, horizontal landscape photo. Yeah. And I would never even seen that first of all. So I was like, you can tape photos together. Yeah. And then all this graffiti, and he's like, yeah, my brother's does, and opened up the closet, and it was full of stolen spray paint. And through there, I kind of like started meeting other graffiti writers and was like, oh, I guess I'm going to, this is, you know, I'm next everybody thing. else is doing it. I'm yeah. good at drawing. And the, uh, yeah. And on top of that, it was like the, the, the coolest guys in the neighborhood and the badasses, like we're all like kind of suddenly I was like not hanging out with little kids. I was like hanging out with grown, like, they're probably 17 or 18, yeah. but, but the they seemed boys. like grown fucking men. Yeah. And I was still that just like, gangsters. that's actually a picture of me uh, on the roller skating back there, the <laughs> behind the flowers, the blonde kid chasing. That's my friend Matthew Bramante, and then that's me. I was really into roller skating that's as awesome. a kid. So that's how old I was, and I just sort of got scooped up by these guys and they, I was like they knew your talent because you're already doing stuff for other kids yeah and they even knew like they could see what I was doing because everyone had peace books and you'd carry drawings around yeah and this is another whole long story but quickly the I there one of the great kind of like mysterious graffiti writers in my neighborhood was this kid Midas and I, be, I became friends with him because he worked at a movie theater on my block and he skateboarded and then he kind of introduced me to this gang of skaters on the Upper West Side who were graffiti writers, but they also skateboarded. And they were basically what was left over of the Zoo York crew, the original Zoo York skateboarding graffiti crew from the 1970s. So this is were about... Were they called Zoo York? Yeah. So the, 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 the sole artist of Zoo York, you know Futura 2000? Yeah. So he... And uh, this other guy named uh, Mark Edmonds, who wrote Ali, the two of them started the sole artists of Zoo York. And there was a skateboarding component to it, which were like skate, because everyone skateboarded and wrote graffiti around the late 70s. So I, this is about uh, 1982 is when I got my first skateboard. So I would have been around like 11 or 12 years old. And uh, all these guys were like the last remaining couple of few dudes who had who still skateboard because no one was skateboarding it was yeah. just weird like, i didn't even see one um in the city and, and they weren't trying to do tricks they were just to skate around yeah and they had like the soft you know ojs and uh and then this one kid showed up who was from north carolina and he was a surfer and a skater named ben alvarez mm -hmm. and he was kind of like punk rock you know 
so he had like the the overcoat with the pins and yeah. checkerboard vans yeah. and 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 actually had a vert ramp in his backyard and wow. could skate. So he was like the first guy I saw kind of do <laughs> do early ollies, you know, like scoop ollies. And they were just like if you basically if you want to hang with us, you have to get a skateboard. Yeah. So um, I um, was like, okay, I got to get a skateboard. I had some money saved. So uh, my mom was going to come down and buy the skateboard with me um, at the one skate shop in the city, which was I was just going to ask, there couldn't be very many no, skate shops. Yeah, there was one. Yeah. It was called Dream Wheels, and it was like 10 foot by 10 foot. Yeah. And it sold vans and a couple of skate t-shirts and skateboard decks. But like really, really not much to go. So I, you know, a little kid going to the skate shop for the first time, and I'm very nervous, like, yeah. oh, am I going to be accepted? So... Was your mom privy to you getting hanging out with these older kids? Always, and, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. She she was always aware. I mean, my mom, my dad died when I was ten, oh, so there's all, no, it's okay. So at this point, I'm kind of like don't. The only oversight I have is from my mom who yeah. works. Yeah. So you know, I was just like kind of free range, but she was very aware of who. I was hanging out with, and also there's a neighborhood aspect to New York. Yeah, so everybody looks out for each other. Yeah, and you'd run into your friends' moms and see what was going on. And I was never really like, like I definitely knew bad kids in, you know, and had, had tangles with them. But I was never. I was always just trying to do art and yeah. have a good time. So, um, so you got your skateboard. Yeah. So well, let me let me backtrack a second. So the guy Midas, who was like the, the and this is one of my my important life lessons is. He was, uh, he wasn't really, like being a graffiti writer, being a, a, a known graffiti writer is a lot of work. Like yeah. you have to, besides just stealing paint, you have to go out, you know, fight the cops, other graffiti writers, constantly be putting pieces up, constantly be going out there. It's like yeah. a criminal enterprise, you yeah. know? Um, and this guy it's was- It's an addiction too. Yeah, to some people, sure, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm still friends with some of the most up people ever and it's like, it's how we surf. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. They meet with their friends and they're like, all right, we're, they, I, I was not as good as they are because some of these people have never been arrested. And by like the time I was 17, I'd already been arrested like four or five times. <laughs> I was just terrible at it. Like, I, yeah. I mean, I was a good artist, but I didn't have the, the criminal cool. The street what, knowledge what, of, what was uh, your tag name? Oh, back Enoch, then I was Enoch. writing, uh, I, Enoch was later, uh, I was writing it back in the, when I first started, I was writing Toasty Nosty, Nost, N-O-S-T. But, um, the, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I was hanging out with Midas and he basically, he, he was like a guy who was probably 17, but he seemed like he was like 45 <laughs> and like totally smooth, black kid. And um, he would like get a piece of loose leaf paper from out of a notebook and back in the day they had these really expensive thin ultra thin pen black pens called rapidographs and he had a set of rapidographs and some designer markers and he would sit there all day uh to the point where i was like i have to leave like this is boring because i'd bang out a piece in like an hour and he would just sit there like he was doing architectural designs wow. and do pieces on loose leaf paper and cut friskets like mask off sections of the of the paper and then get spray paint and spray over them pull the masks away like it was just insane yeah wow. especially to put it on a piece of loose leaf paper then he would hang them on his wall so in his wall he had like a little little museum of like eight pieces and then at a certain point he would take one of the pieces off the wall and then fold it into a, a two inch square 
So he'd take this artwork he spent all week working on, fold it, fold it, fold it, fold it, and then put it in his wallet. So in his wallet, he'd have like six of these little squares. Excuse me. So back then, everyone's, everyone's writing graffiti. So if they see you with paint or something that looks semi-graffiti, you know, you kind of get stepped to by like gangs of kids. Yo, you write, you write, you know? And you're either like, no, I don't write. <laughs> Leave me alone. Or you try to front, yo, what's up? And, you know, it was very, you know, machismo and getting into standing wow, up to people. Yeah, it was really weird, especially for me, because I was like... So he pretty much put his rough draft in... in no, 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 this is beyond rough drafts. This is like <laughs> fine art. And this was the trick. So people used to walk around with peace books, which were these big black books that you know you, you do drawings in and you would give the peace books to other graffiti writers and they you could collect every other graffiti writer's name and they do you little pieces you could tell who was friendly with who That's cool, man. yeah so you're like oh you, you'd find like oh this guy knows dondi who was like one of the great graffiti writers you know so that would be a big deal to my man you know whoever and you're like oh you know dondi that's dope but there was this you know le- leveled playing field and then they would always go to midas and be like, yeah, I write, I Midas. And some people would know him, like, oh, word? You know, you got any, you got a peace book? He's like, no, but... And he'd take out his wallet and then take out the little folded-up drawing and hand them the square. And, and then they would open it up and it would just sun anything anyone would, else could do. That was a signature like, move right fuck? there. Yeah, and it was... Uh, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I was like, this is like psychological warfare. Yeah. yeah. Because the idea is... This is folded up in your wallet? Yeah. Like, what if you really put your mind to it? Yeah, like, yeah. what's his real stuff look like? Yeah. And it would shut everybody up. And I was actually like, when I was with him, I was like really proud. Like, okay, he's going to pull it out, you know? Yeah. So then I started doing it. Like, I was like, I was like, <laughs> you stole I'm, his move. Like, I stole his move. Cool if I, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Up. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I had a couple of drawings in my wallet. So I go to the skate shop and I'm like, you know, kind of, I was borrowing my friend's skateboard and we kind of like rolled down like some little hills in Central Park. And the guys were like, you need to get your own skateboard. So I got all my money together. I go to Dream Wheels and I remember like walking in like shook, like, oh, I'm going into this new thing. And then I look on the window of the store and uh, some graffiti writer, like paint markers just came out, you know, the, po- the, mm-hmm. the uni paint markers. And using paint markers, someone did like a graffiti complete graffiti piece on the window. So I thought, A, that was fucking cool. I've never seen someone use paint markers on the window. I didn't understand like you could just take a razor blade and scrape it off. But yeah, but I never saw anything like that. I don't think anyone did. It was like an attraction, especially in the 80s, you know, like, whoa, all neon colors. And I came in and then like, I want to buy a skateboard, you know? And I was like, yeah, like, what are you into? I was like, oh, I, you know, I drew, I do graffiti a little bit. Oh, what do you, let me see, little kid. And I pull out the little piece of paper and they're like, oh, what the fuck? Like, yeah. you drew this? I'm like, yeah, here they are. Like, you're amazing. The guy who did the window is this guy named Ian Fromm. He's the best skater in New York City. Like, he's going to love you. You're like a little Ian Fromm. And I was like, great. And like, I sat there and they were like, we're going to hook you up. What kind of boards you want? And they totally took care of me. Like, epic. Epic. Like, just immediately I was right in there and I was like, psh. That's like, your first paid piece right there out of your wallet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is dope. And they, I got me a, a, a gator. Gator. I was just going to say yeah. a vision gator. I got a vision my, my blue, a blue and black vision gator and like rat, blue rat bones. They gave me a custom grip tape job. And I was like, yeah. And they were, they were like, oh, if you just wait here, like Ian and all, the, he'll come by. 
And then like we'll introduce you guys, and I was like, oh, like I hang out with the best graffiti writers. Now I'm gonna be hanging out with the best skateboarders. This yeah. is dope. And then Ian comes in with all the other skaters who later on become we all become and friends. You, had, you hadn't met him before. You hadn't seen him. You no. hadn't heard of him. No. And he's like not. Uh, he, and also, like, I'm hanging out with a lot of, like, hip-hop graffiti people who have, like, their own look. Yeah. He was, like, a punk rock guy. So he's got, but, like, he looked like a punk rock skate pirate. He had, like, a bandana on his head and a flannel around his waist. Jean jacket, maybe cut off. No, no, yeah, no. yeah. No shirt. No a shirt. soy style? Yeah, yeah. A soy style, but, like, more in, like, a, like a pirate kind of, like, hillbilly punk rock <laughs> vibe. Spiked bracelets, glove, fingerless gloves. Maybe you just got my Halloween out loud. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen you wear that before, though. He has, like, vans on and knee pads around his ankles. You know, that look. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, wow. And he's, like, doing, like, this is before Ollie's, so it's, like, lots of, like, like bonelesses and grabbing the board and jumping on a trash can and jumping off a trash can. And I'm like, holy fuck. Like, look, yeah. and the, he's got his crew of guys, and they're all, like, completely raging doing slappies and stuff on the street and i'm like you know and he comes in and i'm just like ready for my intro like here i guess he's the guys that'll be hanging out with and they're like hey ian you got to meet this little kid eli from uptown i was like what's up man he's like yeah what's up he was like i love the thing on the window and he was like yeah yeah and he's like a man he's like a again he's probably 16 yeah but to me he's like a grown-ass yeah. dude and I'm like, yeah, and like he writes graffiti, and they're like, oh yeah, like yeah, take show him the pictures. And I take out the little, you know, uh, you know, device, the yeah. piece of square paper, and he unfolds it, and that's it. He's like, fuck this little kid, because it worked too well. Wow. It was clear that I was Way kind of better. a better yeah. artist than he was, okay. or at least the impression yeah. was like. Oh my god! And all the guys at the skate shop were like, "Right, right, this little kid." And he was like, "Yeah, yeah, whatever. Get, 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 I'm not gonna hang with this dude. Whatever it was, he was just like sunned me, and wow. I was like, had all my dreams crushed. Like, oh my god! And he was such a dick to me. And I remember being like, "Later, dudes, or whatever." And he like kicked the door of the skate shop open and like held the his skateboard above his head like a sword, like Conan, and like jumped off the ledge and like bomb dropped on his board and skated away like a badass. And I was like, fuck him. <laughs> you know, I was so mad. That was it for me. Like if that didn't happen, I might have not even gotten into skating. But like as soon as that happened, I was like, fuck this guy. He knows I'm a better artist. He's just playing me in front of everybody. Even the dudes at the skate shop apologized. They yeah. were like, I'm so sorry about that. Like yeah. I don't know why he's being such a dick to you. He was and also threatened. yeah, but and he's a He's an adult, yeah. technically, and I'm just a child. Yeah. And I was like, "Oh my god!" And they were like, "Don't worry, we're we're gonna close up the shop and we'll take you skating." So they like took me skating, and I kind of like got into it, and that's really where it started for me. Yeah. Um, that's so and that was terrible. it. That was it. Was like I'm in, in New hugs. York City. Yeah. I'm skating. Yeah. Um, I barely went to the beach. You know, the beach is a subway ride away for at two hours. You know, um, and and there wasn't much we. Also, at that time, now it's beginning to be like the mid-80s, there was like a surf boom. It was that Hasoi era was kind of popping yeah. off. That like there was like, if you might remember, like the Fat Boys made like a, a revert. They did their version of Wipeout with the Beach Boys. Yes, yes. You know? So there was this weird like kind of like surf hip-hop connection. Yeah. This is also what ultimately spawns Stussy, yeah. Paul Middleman, and uh, all that kind of like starts happening and the cool bar at the at this time was Lucy's Surfeteria and there was one all the way uptown and one downtown 
And wow. Lucy's Surfeteria? Lucy's Surfeteria. And it was like a surf-themed bar. Epic. In New York. In New York. And it was like where all the models went. So it was like uh, it was like all these guys who were probably surfers because you know a lot of mo- male models are surfers. So it was probably guys who I didn't know who were just older. But they would play surf videos on loop all the time. And they would do like whatever new surf video would come out like a, a Christian Hisoy, yeah. a, a Fletcher, like a yeah, all the, all Astro, the, Astro Deck video. All the Astro Decks, <laughs> Wave Warriors. Yeah. yeah. So they would like have the premiere at Lucy Surfetary in New York. Cool. So all the skaters, we would go there. And it was because there was nothing. It wasn't like how it is today. It was like anything that was like surf, beach, you know, related, you know, yeah. when the North Shore came out, we all went to the movie theater <laughs> to see it, you know. So we would go to Lucy Surfeteria, and they knew we were too young to be there, to getting yeah. drunk, but they would give us, like, sodas, and we were, like, genuine, like, surfers, skaters with energy. Yeah. There was one guy who I'm still friends with, and he lives here in, in Santa Monica, or Venice, is this guy named uh, Harlong. And Harlong Nimai Keston is his real name. He's an artist. But back in the day, he was the he was the the one of our crew who we were all like just skating and st- just street skating because there was no pools, there's no ramps. We were just like yeah. the 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 creation of street skating, like yeah. learning how to ollie, learning how to you know skate in the street, learning how to ollie over stairs. Yeah. You know, learning so how to do. You like Harold Hunter? He wasn't even around yet. Oh, no. Harold's like at this point is probably a baby. Okay. This is in the eighties. So, um, but I'll get to that. So, oh no, no, no. Harold uh, just is about to come into the scene, but he's not on the scene yet. And it's a weird little click that we all have. Yeah. A lot of us. Uh, my my friend Aliasha Jabril, a work a more who I started Fat Farm with. Um, you know, like I was skateboarding at once, and also nobody skateboarded. Yeah. So if you found somebody in New York who was also a skater, you were immediately friends. A sidebar yeah. right now about this. I was just in New York last week or the week before uh, uh, shooting catalog stuff for Zoo York. And it was pouring rain. So we were like, oh, we'll go shoot at the skate park underneath the Manhattan Bridge because yep. that way there's no rain. And we get there and there's like uh, 10 kids skateboarding. And when the rain really starts happening, they all stop skating and they all kind of go and they all sit uh, on the, there's like these benches and they sit on the benches and they're all just staring at the rain or, you know, Instagramming. No one's talking to each other. And I was like, do you guys know each other? And they're like, no. And I'm like, you just show up to the skate park and there's other skaters you don't know. And they're like, no, I don't know who these fucking guys are. So weird. And they were mad at me for even asking. And I yeah. was like, what are you t- I knew everybody. Yeah. If you had a skateboard, I knew, I knew your mom. Yeah. You know, like, it, so it's, a, it's a, I guess that's also due to the efforts of all of us at this table. You yeah, know, like we yeah. tried to popularize this and I guess that's what you get. But anyways, so, <laughs> uh, so there, here comes Harlong. The reason he's called Harlong was because he was kind of like really little and had really, really long hair. And, um, and we would tease him. He was a brat and would like, and we would go and like skate banks and he was just into surfing. So that was sort of my first hint of like, oh yeah, I, I wanted to surf as a baby. And he would, we, he wouldn't do tricks. Like we would, everyone's trying to do. He's trying to surf the skate. Yeah. He's like just trying to do cars. Yeah. Yeah. So like there was like a one, there was these St. Vincent's banks, which is basically a city block long. Just like brick banks that went for a whole block. 
and we would like push, 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 skate up the bank, do a boneless and come back in. And here comes hair along and he would just try to like, you know, bottom turn, backside hit, bottom turn, backside hit. You know, we're like, what are you doing? Just doing turns, yeah. you know? And he was like, no, I, w- I just, I want to be a surfer, man. Like, fuck this skateboard. I'm always skating because I can't get to the beach, you know? And, so amazing. We used yeah. to do slashies all over the place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I was hip to it back then. Yeah. Um, and and so and then I went on to skateboard and I got sponsored and you know and then starts uh, shut skateboards in contests and stuff. Yeah. Well, the first the first the, there were no contests and then the they did the first contest at the Brooklyn Bridge Banks, which was called Massacre at the Banks, and I took second place uh, against actually this famous. Fashion photographer Mario Sorrente was a skater when we were kids, and he took first place. <laughs> so funny, full sure, circle, huh? Yeah, small. yeah. So it's a weird, weird small world. So you know, I, I was skating. Uh, also, I'm writing graffiti, so the, I had this like art connection. Yeah. And then the older skaters, these two older skaters, Bruno Musso, who you guys might know because he did a lot of, he was producing a lot of the like trestles contests. Mm. I don't know. He he started shut skates with my other partner from Zoo York. Rodney Smith and uh, so they were like you know I was still like basically like okay I'm getting good at skateboarding you know I'm one of the best guys in the city Uh, I want to get sponsored and uh, around this time my friend Tony Converse from Venice Beach comes to New York and it starts like this whole you know gurgling in New York like there's an actual guy from California here in New York now skating skating and he's from Venice Beach and this was like when Venice Beach was blowing up yeah in the spot you know and um and we were like it was so exciting I mean it was like an astronaut has come to New York you know (laughs) we were yeah we were so stoked and like everyone loved Nottis Kalpas and he skated for Santa Monica Airlines too and knew him and you know and I finally get to meet uh, uh Tony and Tony, I guess, was in the city because his he worked uh, for he worked on a movie crew for some movie that was shooting. So he was there. I think it was like a producer's assistant or something for the whole summer. And he fucking built a jump ramp, like, with, and wrote V thirteen Venice thirteen on the side and spray paint. And I somehow ended up with this jump ramp, you know. And I was so stoked. And then he was so far and away, like, bringing real skateboarding. One of the things you have to understand nowadays. Someone does a trick, it's on Instagram instantaneously. Yeah. But back in the day, as I'm sure it was with surfing, if you you have to go and get the picture, yeah. then they gotta develop the picture, then they gotta go put it in the magazine, and the magazine gets printed. Yeah. So Months it was later. like a three month yeah. gap. So anything that happened, everything you were looking at in New Thrasher, that already happened almost ha- yeah. half a year ago. And your circle of peers are doing the same tricks, right? And maybe creating well, stuff. Well, sword. Here, here's a new guy. With all kinds of different... Oh, yeah. I mean, he was like, you know, we like saw... And also, there's no video. It's like you see a picture of like someone doing a frontside wall ride on a jump ramp. And you're like, oh, okay. And I remember Tony brought the ramp to my to my up, uptown where I was living on the Upper West Side. I actually have a video of this. And we were like skating. And then he had to go to work. So he was like, oh, yeah, just holding in my ramp. And then we took it to a handball court. It's like a 1980s New York City graffiti piece with like a just jump ramp. And we're like trying to figure out how to do wall rides. And we're basically like bouncing off the wall, you know, like just doing like going kind of slow and like like maybe making it once in a while. And then he came back and was just like 
pushing and pushing and doing like as fast as you could. Yeah, ten foot frontside wall rides, you know, just landing them. Whack! The dead stops, you know. We were like, whoa! So that was like really inspirational, and I started like skating with him a lot. And he was like almost like my coach, yeah. And was like telling me how to do like judos and whatever. And then he started sending me boxes. So how old are you now? Like 15? fifteen, yeah, fourteen or fifteen. And then like he, he started sending me boxes from Santa Monica Airlines, and wow. I got like all these like Nottis boards, which I loved. And then Skip Anglum, who had you know from Z Boys fame, right? Yeah. Uh, he well, that was his company now was Santa Monica Airlines, and he's sort of like a little tinkerer. So he would make all these handmade boards, like he'd hand saw them and spray paint them with cool colors and all these weird ideas and I guess didn't like or they didn't work and he'd send me them. So I would have all these weird boards that no one would ever, like these handmade boards from Skip Anglum. I didn't even understand Z-Boys at the time, yeah. you know, so I was didn't even know, I mean, I wish I, I had these things. They should be in, a, they should have been in a museum. If I yeah. knew who he was. Yeah. You know, I just knew he was the boss man, but I didn't know the heritage of what he did. Yeah, they they were just amazing. They're, and all these like one offs that you know, yeah, should have kept. But yeah, exactly. Uh, it's just insane stuff. I was so lucky, and um, you know, and I was like stoked. And then Rodney and Bruno go, and they want to start the skateboard company in New York City called Shut. This is 1986, maybe late 1985, and they're like, yeah, we're gonna start our skateboard company. It's gonna be New York based. And I was like, what are you guys, crazy? Yeah. Like, I thought it was the dumbest idea. I was like, skateboarding is for Californians. That's where it comes from. And that's where the industry is. And that's how it's always going to be. And they were like, all right, well, will you do us the logo? And I was like, sure, sure. So I drew the shut logos. Um, also, Ali Asha helped. And I mean, basically, uh, all the guys who skateboard in New York who could draw helped in some fashion. Yeah. Uh, Hugh Grant, Wiley Singer... Ali Asha, myself, we would all do various different things and help the different art. And we made the shut boards and shut became very popular right off the bat. Well, was it because of just your group and everybody was going to ride it? Well, it was, uh, it was skating in skating in New York. In a way, it was sort of like it, it, it was a weird to me it was like i'm never going to end up in california i'm never going to be a pro in california no yeah. one in new york has ever gone to california and become pro yeah. you know um and we're just this little group of weird graffiti writing skateboarders in new york and that's just what it's going to be even like kids would come in from outside of the city to go skate the banks and stuff like that but they weren't locals I, we weren't like territorial you know like locals only fuck yeah. you get out of new york that really uh i understand why that is in surfing because yeah. waves are a limited resource yeah you don't want you know people invading but in skateboarding it's like if there's another 10 kids from you know pittsburgh who were skating at the banks yeah, i'm just i'm gonna just go when they're not going the yeah. bank is still gonna be there so there wasn't that kind of uh Territory. Territoriality or hostility towards outside people, but there was definitely like, yeah, you're bullshit. Like we all know each other and we're like a, a little clique. So, uh, so was there skate shops starting to pop up? Well, at that point, Dreamwheels went out of business, which is probably a drug front, to be quite honest. Yeah. And then another skateboard shop opened up called Soho Skates uh, in Soho around that time, and that was like the. The, the, the epicenter of skateboarding. There were a couple other places to get skateboards. I actually ended up getting a job at this bike shop on the Upper East Side called Larry's and Jeff's. 
And during the skate boom of the 80s, they sold skateboards and just put me in charge. And I was, again, 15 years old, didn't have a manager or the manager was a bike rider and didn't know anything about skateboarding. So I kind of just like ordered things I wanted for myself, would steal half of it and like sell the other half, get my, hook my friends up, you know, take money under the table. They didn't know what was going on. Was it like a bike skate, like a roller skating they, and then they brought in skateboards? No, no, it was a bike shop. Bike it was shop. like yeah. Cannondale's, like all the serious bike riders wow. were there. And I think it might still even be there. Later on, this is a whole other funny story. I gave my job there to these like other skaters uh, these like these two kids from the projects who like needed a job and I was like I'm gonna quit you want the gig and they got the gig and were there so long that they transitioned out of skateboarding into like criminals but were still like running the skate shop and then got the keys and like one day I'm at my house years later and I'm like and they're like yo Eli you gotta come out and help us and I'm like okay I'm like what's up what's with the box truck and they're like, Wah! and they stole all the bikes. Oh my god! They must have had two hundred bikes, like just in the boxes. And I'm like, what the fuck? And they're like, you gotta help us carry all these bikes to the storage room in the projects. Like, and I was like, if you give me a bike, I'll do it. And they gave me like this dope Cannondale, and we just like moved a hundred bikes into the storage room in the projects. And I was like, are you sure this is a good idea leaving all these bikes here? They're like, yeah. And then I like had this Cannondale and I whipped it around for like a month or two. And then they like came to my house like, we got busted. The cops are on to us. Like, you got to give us the bike back. And I was like, I don't want to give you this bike back. That's on you. They're like, no. And they, uh, I gave them the bike back like a jerk. I should have kept it. And then the cops with detectives showed up at their house with guns. And they were like, we know you stole all the bikes. And they went down to the storage room, opened it up. Someone stole all the bikes from them. No uh. way. Oh my gosh. So there was like no bikes, there was no evidence, yeah. and they got off, you know? Wow. Yeah. But that's yeah. just kind of like a one, this happened all the time, yeah. crap like this in New York, you know? So we did, we did shut, and I did a bunch of skateboard graphics, and then uh, Santa Monica Airlines kind of broke up and went out of, not really, I guess they did go out of business, but it got split in two, and half of it went to Steve Rocco, and it turned into World Industries. And then the other half went to Santa Cruz and then kind of just got absorbed into Santa Cruz. And I was I kind of like without a sponsor and everyone at this point. What happened to Shut? Well, Shut had the same fate as the Z-Boys, which was that they got all the best talent around New York who everyone was neglecting. And then they got uh, basically picked off by all the California companies. Mm. Come skate for us, we'll pay you. Come skate for us, we'll pay you. Yeah. Then they were, had no cut, they had no team, and they had a warehouse full of boards, and, uh, you know, they took an inventory position where they, like, ordered hundreds of boards of the same stuff, and it was right when the, the, the old 80s kind of, like, money bump fish shapes were giving way to the popsicle stick shape. Yeah, yeah. So no one wanted it, and they had all these boards. It was bad. Uh, Bruno left the company, and then Rodney uh, just had to run away. They left this warehouse. So the old shut warehouse, this is another funny story. The old shut warehouse in uh, now is Nolita was on Mott Street, and it was in the sub-sub basement. It was like a three-story walk down into like the lowest part of the ice cold. Wow. And the only thing down there cool awesomely enough was the shut skates warehouse where all the skateboarders in new york and anyone who would come and visit that would all hang out and the room across the way was the practice room not kidding for 
Sonic Youth and the Beastie Boys. No way. Yeah. So we would just sit there and like screw around and skate and draw pictures and you could just hear Sonic Youth and the Beastie Boys all jamming constantly. Yeah. It was cool. It was like, it was really funny. They'd come in like, what's going on guys? Nothing man. Love the new album. (laughs) (laughs) And that was cool. So when those guys left, they just took off and they left this giant warehouse with all these boards. So around New York City for years, Every so often, there would be this like little trickle of 1980s shutboards would just somehow appear, yeah. and you'd see them in bodegas, you know. So I guess the landlord just took the skateboards and would like sell them, them to people to yeah. try and like recoup some money. So at this time, everyone's kind of stopped skateboarding. I'm still like I was sponsored, and I got to go to California, and like kind of it was had pictures in Thrasher, and like. You know, I had a little inkling of a skate career, if you could call it. So I was, like, trying to keep that going. But most of my other friends, the vast majority of everybody who I said we were a big gang and we all knew each other, um, most of, uh, half of them just quit skating altogether and just grew up and became drug dealers or went off to go do something else. And the other half just started surfing. So all of this little crew, Hairlong now, is a grown guy gets himself a car and can drive to the beach and I see him around and he's like what's up man I'm surfing and all my other close friends who I was like my skate partners just went surfing that was it so finally one day they were just like you gotta start surfing and I was like oh okay (laughs) at what age like I started surfing when I was 17 or 18 yeah and um they the first day was like all right, we, they got me a board. Also, the, the, it's really funny now that I'm talking about it, how like what kind of little criminals we all were. So at Soho Skates, uh, they had a racket going on. First of all, Soho Skates was also a drug front uh, <laughs> where they were somehow moving marijuana around inside of this thing. Uh, I was not privy to any of that, although I did see they got robbed at one point, and like I saw the some other drug dealers realized that they had drugs and money in the office and they came in and like knocked out all the skaters who were at the behind the counter and then robbed the place. So I saw that I came in right after the robbery and was like, "What? Drugs?" <laughs> like I had no idea. I thought it was a 100% like a, a proper skate shop. <laughs> but some of the guys who worked at the counter, they uh this is like a credit card carbon paper era (laughs) that shit so um they would know like rich like families from germany would come in and buy like four skateboards that they would bring back to germany because it was hard to get skateboards and they'd be like okay these guys have money so they would like do the whole thing and then like throw the carbon paper in the trash and then give the receipt back to them and then they would have the credit card numbers right so all these guys wanted to start surfing so they would literally just call up surf shops and be like yeah i want to order you know four surfboards give me you know four thrusters that are six five six one six two here's the credit card number and they all these surfboards would show up to the skate shop and then um this was like an ongoing scam and i had friends who had whole quivers um that were just completely fraudulently got and so and there was one place that was like an outdoors shop I uh, can't remember the name of it. It was on the Upper East Side. It had no real connection to surfing or skating. It was like definitely like fly fishing and tents yeah. and like. But it's not yeah. Paragon Sports, is it? No, no, no. It was. It, 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 actually, I think Paragon did it at certain points sell skate and surf stuff, and 
And I think there was, you know, its own problems going on there. But this place in the basement had a whole, like, sea beach area, you know? So they had wetsuits. They had wetsuits and they had a couple of surfboards, bad ones, and related beach fairing stuff. So, like, one of my friends who was, like, at this point I wasn't even, like, into surfing that much. And we had, like, our little mountain bikes and my friend... Aaron, I won't say anymore. He, we go to this place and he's like, yeah. And then, you know, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're just looking at wetsuits. I'm like, okay. And then like Aaron just like goes and he finds whatever he's wearing, you know, the medium wetsuit. And he like checks it out and he like goes into the, goes into the, the what's it called? The changing room. changing room, puts the wetsuit on, um, then comes out and looks at me, just does the shh. Gets another wetsuit, puts that wetsuit on over the wetsuit, comes out and gets a third wetsuit, puts that on over, it's three wetsuits deep now, oh then puts on all of his clothes, and then we walk back out, he's like, bye! And then we still had to ride across the city, through Central Park, back to my house. He's wearing three wetsuits, like, <laughs> like wow. dripping sweat, you know? And I was just like, man, like everyone's just like a little hustler. So that's just how it was. And finally, they're like, they're like, oh, there's gonna be a little, and this is before surf reports. So you just had to call the one surf shop for the one morning phone call, and you know it's gonna be three waist high, super glassy conditions. Get out there, middle of summer, so hot. Um, they're like, you're coming to the beach. I'm like, okay. So I go to the beach. They give me one of the stolen boards, not stolen, but you know, yeah. scammed boards. <laughs> It stolen. was like a yeah, stolen. <laughs> uh, it was a Hawaiian, a blue Hawaii. Blue Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what it was. I had that board, at one of them, and I was like, "Don't." And also, there's a whole other side part where I just so you know, everybody, I got kicked out of every high school in New York City and got sent to boarding school. Uh, it was like a reform school, and it was up in Connecticut, and the, uh, so it was right next to a ski mountain. So I started snowboarding. I got sponsored for snowboarding too. Wow. And I was like really good. Yeah. Uh, but then when I got back to New York, it was just again like, I don't have a car and it takes three hours to get to the mountain. This is not like the 15 minutes to the mountain, you know? So uh, I, I was like, oh, I'm sure I'll be good at surfing. <laughs> and I remember just being like, what the fuck? Like, how do you sit on this thing? And and we're learning how to surf at the one at Rockaway Beach 90. There's and this is kind of like the city was still getting out of being uh, bankrupt. So there's no lifeguards. Uh, the beach is covered in garbage, and the there's no rules. And that was really like that was where I started learning how to surf. And I remember paddling. It was the middle of summer. There's people all on the beach. And, I'm, and it was waist-high little crappy waves. And I'm paddling, paddling, trying to catch waves. And I'm just going right straight to the beach. Straight to the beach. And I guess... Was there, I, was there a surf scene going on? There is there? a little crew of people at Rockaway. Yeah. Um, Locals and like... Or just tourists? And, well, we were, we were city kids. Yeah. So like the guys who lived in Rockaway, who were mostly sort of like older firemen. And a lot of firemen and cops live out there. Like, super guido. What the fuck are you doing, dudes? Get the fuck off our waves. Like, that's how it was. <laughs> the, the, the kid who was, like, the good surfer at Rockaway in the, in the 80s was, like, a fucking little guido Irish terror. And he would, like, come out smoking cigarettes. I remember he, would, like, he was, like, a, a, a chain smoker. So he would paddle. It's not, it's not Pat Conlon, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, but Pat Conlon knows this kid for sure. 
Shout out to Pat Conlon. Shout out to Pat Conlon. uh, But Pat, listen, Pat lived in the nicest area of of Rockaway. And right at the end of his street, he had his own break. Mm -hmm. So, like, I didn't know Pat forever because he was off surfing his private break. Uh, And Pat's (laughs) a good surfer, you know? So, um, so, like, I'm paddling, going into the beach. And I remember paddle. And you don't know when you're learning, you don't look. The trick to surfing, it's like, I always tell people who are learning, I'm like, it's like crossing the street. Like, if you've got the wave, look both ways. Yeah. yeah. And if there's someone coming and you're learning, don't go, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I don't even know that. So I'm paddling, paddling, paddling. The wave takes me. I stand up straight to the beach and I look up and there's like this little black kid in the water and I'm like about to stab him with the nose of my board and my snowboarding kicked in and I did like a snowboarding stop, like on rail to oh, wow. stop and then whoop, right down the line. You know, uh, backside, and I was like, "Oh, I'm surfing. That's how you surf. Yeah. It's on rail. He'll tell. He'll tell. Yeah, exactly." And I was like, "Oh, I got this now." And and then I even and then this also goes to a whole other thing where uh, th- my whole life is about to be changed, but I don't realize it. So at this point, I'm in New York City, I'm taking subways. I've got electric lights. Uh, you know, people come in. I've been in fights. I've been in 200 people gang fights. And I've been like, as a 10-year-old, had to fight off 30-year-old men off me. And, you know, wrote graffiti and got a name for myself. And did skateboarding and got a name for myself. And, you know, snowboarding. And I, and I really was just like, really had like, not like an ego, but I was just like really confident, confident in yeah. who I was. And like, nothing's, nothing's impossible. impossible, you know. And, but it, it at the same time... That you think that there's this other aspect that you don't you don't realize how much you're taking things for granted. Yeah, and this is where this happens. So I surf that one day, and then a couple of days go by, and then I start getting the phone calls at like ten, eleven o'clock at night. It's gonna be firing. The hurricane swells coming. Tomorrow we're picking you up at 5 a.m., Eli. Get fucking ready. And I've never done any of this shit in my whole life. I'm like, 5 a.m.? Right. Like, it, really? Yeah. And they're like, yeah. And we um, the the <laughs> we had this gigantic... Actually, the guy behind the credit card scams who was best friends with Hairlong is this like six foot six black Jamaican guy named Martin. What the fuck, blood clot, Eli? <laughs> and he had a... a he was a, an assistant for photographers and had like a white cargo van with no seats so he would just be like ross clark get the fuck in here man and we would all he would just drive around the city and pick up like six of us that's awesome and we're all in the back of this cargo van sliding around holding our surfboards there's nothing to hold on to we do the same thing on, the, on, on this side yeah here. yeah <laughs> and well and he's just like bl- blasting dance hall and like just screaming this just loud monster dude and it's like such a new york scene like We've got the the Jewish kids and the like, black kids and the Puerto Rican kids and the Chinese kids, and we're all sliding and they're out of the back. And we get to Rockaway Beach, and there's Rockaway 90, which is like a nice beach that you can get to by the train. But then there, apparently, I learned there's a better spot called Beach 36, which is a decimated no man's land. And I've never seen anything like this in all my time in New York. I saw uh, like demolished buildings and shit, like in the South Bronx. But there were always, like, buildings. So apparently the story is, in the turn of the century, in the late 1800s, this spot was the Hamptons of New York in the late 1800s. And there were blocks and blocks and blocks of mansions that were built. Then the subway 
they built all the bridges to get out to Rockaway and they made the subway get to, that's where it ends, at Beach 36. So suddenly all the rich people are living where all the commoners can go and cars get better and the roads get better. So all the rich people move further out to Rockaway and they abandon these mansions. Wow. And people were living there, but by the after World War II, it just turned into like a slum of rundown mansions with junkies and pimps and shootouts, just a complete mess. Wow. So the city was just like, fuck it, and got bulldozers and bulldozed it. So there's like, I don't know, let's just say four square miles right on the beach with a boardwalk and then just blocks of nothing. Just there's sidewalks in disrepair with fire plugs and a sewer system and a couple of lights, but just completely demolished grass growing everywhere. I want to go there now and check it out. Yeah. Well, now they're now they're starting to develop it. But back then, the only thing down there were uh, crack whores. No joke. That the, the where the and they built projects down there. So the projects start kind of right past Beach Thirty Six. Um, shout out to Wavecrest. Um, but actually, believe it or not, remember that show Cops? Yeah. yeah. So one time I'm watching Cops and they're doing Cops Rockaway Beach and like the street where we surf right next to. That's like the head hotbed of crack dealers. Wow. So we would go and surf. This is a little bit later after I, I'll go back to the story. But, like, the crack dealers would come with, like, pit bulls with chains around their necks with, like, 20-pound dumbbell that weights. Was Huntington. <laughs> they do that in Huntington? <laughs> they would look at us. They would, like, during the 4th of July, they'd shoot fireworks and rolling candles at us in the water. And so, anyways, the first day I go here, it's, like, foggy. Um, I'm like, where am I? It's like something out of a nightmare because I've never seen just like a decimated part of New York City. There's wild dogs running in and out of the fog. And like we're all there. Everyone, they're, they're seasoned surfers at this point. They'd be like two or three years deep with surf trips to Puerto Rico. I'm just like second time surfing. And I just like hear the waves. And I'm like, what the fuck is this is fucking horrifying. And there was one girl with us, Michelle Lockwood, who uh, is also, if in the movie Kids, she's the red-haired girl in the okay. movie Kids. So Were she, you in Kids? Uh, for a second. So yeah. skate, I did the opening closing credits and skateboarding in it and stuff. That's, that's what I was telling Laura. I, go, I yeah. think he was in Kids. Yeah, well, just for a second. Not, not, I'm not in kids. Yeah, I, I think I actually. No, you're in kids. Too. I intentionally avoided being in kids, to tell you the truth. But the, the so, anyways, I'm with Michelle, and she's sitting on the beach, and everyone is paddling out, and I'm just like walk through the fog, and I can only just hear the waves. Pumping. It's fog, like yeah, I hate pea fog. soup fog. I hate that. I love it actually. I love it now. And I'm like going through. I don't know where I am, and then it's like you just see these like. I mean, in my mind, they're 20-foot waves, but they're probably, like, solid 8-foot yeah. waves Big. coming in. Big. Good size. Good size. And these guys are losing their shit. Whoo, and woo! And they're just <laughs> paddle out, duck diving. Wait, I don't even know how to duck dive. What, yeah. time, what time of year was this? Was it, like, full August, suit or, like, August. Oh, hot? So it was yeah, no, I, I No, no, no. Was I? I might have been in trunks. Yeah. It could have been, like, September, end of summer, yeah. where it was. Still warm. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm, I'm going out, and, I, I, and I, when I w- the first day I went surfing, it was waist high. So I was just, like, bouncing out, pushing the board. I didn't yeah. learn how to duck dive. I'm trying to get worked. All my friends are catching waves and coming out, like, you got to duck dive. I'm trying to figure that out. Uh, it takes me an hour to get outside. Everyone has heard this dumb story. They have their own version of yeah. it, right? So I get out there. I still and have trouble. Shut up. And I'm outside and I'm like, and it's so foggy 
that like all my friends are there like yeah you did it you got out and I'm like yeah catching my breath I'm like whoo that's crazy and then a set comes through and everyone catches waves and they all take off and then I'm just sitting there and I'm looking around and there's so much fog I start panicking I'm like where's the shore like which way is which you know and it's like dark you know the sun's barely up and I'm like I'm like what's going on man and like I can hear them hooing and hawing coming out so I'm like oh right, that's the shore and then I turn around and another set's coming. So I'm like, all right, just paddle. And I'm like, paddle, 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 paddle. And I can't catch the wave. Paddle, paddle, I can't catch a wave. And then I look and I'm like, all right, this is the one, man. Then I just bury my nose and I'm paddling, I'm paddling, I'm paddling. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know which way to go. I don't know what's front side or back side. I'm just paddling, paddling. And all my friends are paddling out and they see me. So they all start cheering, go, go, go. And I just paddle, paddle, paddle. I feel like maybe the wave has me and I stand up. And basically, I'm just on the tip, crest of the wave, and I haven't dropped in. So I kind of stand up, and I come through the fog, and I have, for the first time in my life, an aerial view of the beach. And I'm like, so I'm like on this eight-foot wave, standing six feet up, and I'm like, wow. And I see Michelle like looking up at me on the beach, and I'm like, wow, just like this is insane. And I just get like right over the falls, tossed, and I'm just like. And then the wave hits me. I go, I'm wearing contact lenses because I can't see good. I go to the bottom of the ocean and I'm like, just feel the weight of the wave pushing me down. And I'm like, oh, and I'm panicking. And like, don't panic, don't panic, don't panic. That's how people die. And then I feel the wave go away and I push up to get a wave. And another wave hits me. And I'm like held down again. And I go up again and another wave hits me. Oh and I'm just like sitting there and I'm like, start panicking. I start swallowing water. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm fucking going to die. <laughs> You know, and I'm like, can't get my, my, I lose my contact lenses because I'm so scared. I'm opening my eyes underwater. And then like, I have this like moment where I'm just like, I'm going to, I'm going to drown. Like, this is what drown, that peaceful calm, they say. And then as I'm having that peaceful calm, like I'm going to drown, the waves stop. And I'm like, oh. And then I just like swim up, come onto the beach, I'm puking. The girl comes running and she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, just a mess. And I'm laying there on the beach. (laughs) Y'all screw this surfing gig. No, the exact opposite. I love it. Yeah, I was just like, wow. Like at that point, I realized that growing up in a city is like you basically sort of, we have this delusion as humans because we can get hot water when we want it and the food's there in the fridge that we're sort of like masters of the universe. But then like I kind of was like really humbled and I was like, wow, like I could die that easily regardless of how awesome I think I am, you know? And it kind of like put everything into perspective for me. And then after that, I was, that was it. I was just like, I'm going back out. You know, I didn't go back out that day. (laughs) I just sat on the beach and thank God I was alive. But that's kind of when it started you know, uh, it started, uh, I got addicted to surfing, you know, yeah. like that was, you got addicted. The, the, what, the yeah, bug, the bug, the bug got me. Got you. Yeah. That's so awesome. Did, did, did you, did you feel like it was, you know, you, like you said, you conquered skateboarding, you, you conquered, sur- you know, snowboarding. Yeah. It, was it kind of the same, same approach? Like I got to no. get good at this or no, no, it was the, the I, 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 I'm, I have a, it might have to do with my father dying but I sort of have this like, and maybe just from growing up in in New York City at the time, I, me and a lot of my friends, like we always joke about like, oh, we ha- must have PTSD. There's just no way <laughs> you could grow up in that environment and not have that kind of a, of a thing. But I think it's sort of that, 
this is like going to sound like a really, really macho, dramatic statement, and it's not this, but it's like the guys who go to Vietnam and then they come home and they're like, I can't stay here, and they go back to Vietnam. That's kind of like the thing that is is most comfortable to me, or it kind of feels like home. Is like if if I know I'm in in danger, then I know that there's I can handle it and I can deal with it. Yeah. When everything seems to be going okay, I'm like so I'm I'm Sometimes, not paying attention. Yeah. That's scary to me. Yeah, yeah. When everything's kind of like chill, I can't even like go to the beach and just hang out. Now I can now that I'm older. But like I would go to the beach if there was no waves. I would just be like I get you know girls would be like where are you going? We just got here. I was like, I'm not, I can't be here. You know, it was always some sort of obstacle or challenge and like the more of the obstacle. The more chaos. Yeah, yeah. And it's not, and it's not, it's not like, you know, uh, my girlfriend's uh, uh, stepsister, uh, I was driving them back to the city when we were in the, in New York and she's sort of like a very conservative person. And I'm just like, through yeah. the traffic. And she, I realized at a certain point, like she was losing it. Like she was scared shitless. Yeah. You know, and I was like, oh, my God, am I driving too crazy for you? And she was like, no, I mean, yes, you know, <laughs> and I was like, oh, and then she was like, I guess it's just because you're like an adrenaline junkie, you know, and I was like, no, it's, it's actually work. the opposite. It's the it's not scary. Total control yeah. And yeah it's, 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 well, that's how you grew up. And yeah, that, that's how people drive in New York. So. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And she's 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 not from New York. And yeah. she was when the, she just actually got a place in New York. And I was like. Like, how do you like your new place? She was like, it's great. I like it. There's lots of good grocery stores. And she goes, and it's centrally located to all my health providers, healthcare providers. And I was like, <laughs> is that why you chose this place? Because of your fucking insurance? Like, what kind of a person are you? That's, that's the exact pole. I am the, the polar opposite of that, yeah. you know? Oh, so, that's so funny. Yeah, so that's kind of like where the whole surfing thing kind of started for me. So at that point... I was just getting out of, I graduated from, you know, I was gradu- graduating from college, or I was in college to make money. I started doing these hip hop parties. Like, I was going out. What were you going to school for? Art? For film, to be oh. a film, because I'm a film director, guys. Film? It's yeah. right there on the list of it's stuff film. I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, I was um, going to film school. And I was to going be a, a director to be yeah to be a, a filmmaker, filmmaker. yeah okay. that was really what I want. It's my always been my dream since I was a kid. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, I, 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 a lot of my father's friends were fine artists, like people who showed in galleries, and I got to. Uh, that's kind of where I thought originally I was going to go, but they all ended up having really miserable lives. Even the successful ones just were always. I was tortured like, artists, tortured, and I was yeah. just like, oh wow, like this is not. Drawing, drawing more lows and highs and probably, yeah, yeah yeah and also just like just being an artist there's a or they were just like insane you know there was like there's like a lot of a lot of crazy people are artists yeah I probably am one of them but <laughs> I have a little bit more of a grip on reality yeah. so I was started I was going out a lot so my life was consisted of uh, going to school skateboarding still um, by myself because none of all my friends stopped. And then I'd go out at night and I'd go surfing. So that was like kind of, that was all I was really doing. So I was going out and going out and I was still living with my mom, excuse me, in this apartment on the Upper West Side and my mom and my sister, shout out to mom and sis. And the, uh, and um, so I started going out 
all the time, every single night, going out, going out, partying, and partying. Yeah. But I, I was clubs. Yeah, but a, a lot of a lot of that. It, it, it was a different era. There was no bottle service club. It was like all the clubs were sort of more of these installation art things. Yeah. There were just like giant rooms with no chairs. Like sitting down was not really an option yeah. back then. They wanted you to dance. They wanted you to go get drinks. You know, like early and, rave days. No, no. This is like probably what Studio Fifty Four. That kind of a club yeah. grew into in New York. So, like the Palladium, um, you know, the Tunnel, uh, the Limelight, um, Nels, the these there that the what the what the world thinks of of you know like even if, like the DJ you never saw the DJ the DJ was hidden away in a corner there were disco lights and rooms I was not really like a party people also have connotations of like doing drugs and getting wasted and that's not why I went out like uh, I was probably going out to meet girls and I just liked the music and the all my friends were doing it and it was seemed like everybody who was cool in New York doing something was always out so before social media every single night it would be like where's the party at yeah oh it's it's gonna be there's gonna there, so there was the clubs as I just mentioned yeah. Palladium Limelight uh, what have you, the tunnel area, danceateria. But those clubs strictly played house music. Yeah. And this is kind of when hip-hop was just like in the late 80s, early 90s, Tribe Called Quest era of hip-hop. And all those parties uh, were pop-up parties. So a promoter would rent a venue like Irving Plaza for one night, and they would promote make, it and pump it and put, yeah that was it and they would and they would get like and it would be like a hip hop party and even though hip hop is created in New York City the city hates it at this point like in New York City they wouldn't they we didn't even have a hip hop radio station the only time they would play hip hop was Saturday Friday nights and Saturday nights but even the club owners wouldn't promote it either right like no the club owners wouldn't even play the only song they would play at a club would be like it takes two it takes two to make a thing go right. That yeah. was it. No more hip hop yeah. because it had it, even these these parties that they would do, like the payday parties, these early hip hop parties. They always get shot up. Yeah. There would always be. I, I saw my friends get shot like so many times at these things. But that's all that the kids wanted to listen to. And I knew that all of my friends, if there was no hip hop party and we would go to like Limelight or Nels and they're playing house music. Everyone would lament, like, I wish they would play fucking hip-hop songs. We would be dancing to house music, talking about hip-hop music, yeah. you know? So, this new club opens up. Oh, so, I'm going out so much and I'm not making any money. My mom is just like, if you're living in my house, you're not going out to clubs anymore. You got to get a job. I was like, okay, I'll get a job. Uh, behind the scenes, at this point also, like, I've been beta testing... Photoshop and Illustrator, so <laughs> such a weird guy. So <laughs> I, 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 I was like a master of Photoshop and Illustrator, and nobody knew how to do that in, at all uh, the ad did agencies. They find you or something? My mother was an art director, oh. so I, when I went to boarding school, they had a computer lab, and I learned. You're talking Photoshop and yeah, Adobe, Adobe. Photoshop yeah. and Adobe Illustrator. So they had the old <laughs> Lego head, you know, the Earl, the first bong, the first beige. Apple Macintosh, right? The yeah. little box. So they had that at my boarding school, and I was one of the things I gravitated to. I was like, oh, cool. I can do all my work on here, and very early programs. The year I graduated in 88, they came out with the Mac 2, which was the first full-color Macintosh that could do 3D rendering. 
but I'm just talking about like one through like a, a mirrored silver ball and like a, a checkerboard floor with some like mountains in the background. <laughs> and that was it. The whole machine took all day just to make that one picture. Yeah. You know? But still in 1988, that was like, what the fuck? Yeah. So for my graduation present, instead of getting a car, I got the computer. So then I got the computer and there was no programs because it was so new, you know, there was like nothing to do on it. And like basically I would like go around like, let's check the preferences, you know, like (laughs) there was nothing. There was no internet, you know, Uh, I think uh, Tetris, that was the one program, the Russian version of Tetris. That was like something people were handling, a bootleg Tetris version. That was the only thing to play. Um, I think I had a screenwriting program that I wrote my scripts on. And then my mom was like, listen, there's this company and they're coming out with this like drawing program called Illustrator. Um, and the, this guy who I do work with is testing it. And he said he'll illegally make you a copy. So we, for like a hundred bucks or 80 bucks. So we went and met him in like a coffee shop and like gave him like 80 bucks and he gave me the envelope. Floppy disk. Yeah, with like six floppy disks. And it was like disk one, put this in first, put this in second. And then you had to put the disks in yeah. and that would load Illustrator <sighs> and that was it. If you turn the machine off and turn it back exactly. on, you'd have to reload the whole program yeah. again, you know? And it was like you drew everything in uh, wires, like just like a wire with a point and a wire with a point pick a color that you'd have to think about. I want it to be red. And then you do these things and then you have to do command R for render. And it, I'm literally talking like the dumbest thing that you could think of, like a, like just the letters on like a soap bottle, you know, whatever, tasty soap with one thing, but you'd have to press render and it would have to draw the whole thing and you'd watch it. And then there was no way to print it. So wow. you'd have to like save it all to a floppy disk and then go to a service bureau that had like this giant machine that could print it and you'd pay you know $20 to get one print but i was the only guy there must have been like you know 15 people in all of new york who knew how to do this stuff that is so crazy. because my mom was an art director she started pimping me out as like uh, a mercenary like a, a photoshop and illustrator mercenary yeah. and that's how i was making money hmm. was like She'd, I, she'd like page me, I had a pager, and I'd call her up and she would like go to this place and I would meet these famous designers who were, you know, have won all these design awards and, but were like 60 years old and only knew how to use razor blades and tape and masks and paint and markers. Yeah. And then they were like, all right, well, you know, I'd literally go there and for like, you know, 150 bucks, it was like, could you draw a circle? And I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, I can. And like, On this computer? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It was that that dumb, like me, like walking some award-winning designer who I've jocked my whole life, just like, all right, you want to? Cir- How many circles do you need? <laughs> you know? And you're getting good. That's good money back then. Oh yeah, what? Let's like, make this one oval. Yeah, yeah. And and, they, and that's how it worked. Is all the whole design team would stand behind you, and you were just like pulling your most basic you're a magician. stuff. Like, exactly. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was that was it was pretty cool, but it wasn't wizard. it wasn't steady work. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, and so I've made the deal with my mom. If I'm going to live here, I'm not going to go out. So I'm not really going out that much. And I start getting the phone calls like, are you okay? Like, where are you? And then um, I get a phone call from my friend Carter Smith. Shout out to Carter Smith, uh, who changed my life by going, calling up and be like, listen, man, you got to come out. I got a job being a promoter. So nowadays that also has different connotations, kind of like douchey connotations. Yeah. But a promoter back in the, in the early 90s was you go to the club, you had like a messenger backpack, and you'd get postcards 
that all had the information for the club, what was going on, then they would give you like a couple, like 30 bucks or 40 bucks, and you and your friend would go to every club in the city. So you'd go to the club, walk around the club, and hand passes out. Yeah. That was what promoting was. So my friend was like, what? He was like, you're going to pay you $100 a night, and I get to go out? He's like, yeah. So there's this new club opening up called Mars, and I'm the promoter, and you can, you can be my assistant. I was like, great. So we went. I, I went to my mom, and I was like, guess what I'm doing tonight, Mom? I'm going out. And she was like, no, you're not. You need to have a job. And I was like, it's my job. And, <laughs> and I went to the club and got my backpack, and we all got the passes and started going out. But at this point, we uh, because I'd already been going out for so long, it was like people I hadn't seen in a while, and they were all like, "Oh, you're back!" And I was like, "Yeah, there's a new club, Mars." And uh, as a promo gag, that you know, Mars bars, the candy bars. So they had well, I had bags full of Mars bars. Mm. All the bouncers would like see us coming and like open up the gates, push the crowd away to let us in because we give them all candy bars for free. Yeah. They were hungry, so we would like <laughs> get in there and then we'd go around and hand out passes. And it, like after about like the club opened, it was the newest club in New York. It was huge. Everyone wanted to go there, and I was the promoter. And it suddenly like my social status went through uh. the roof. Then the the owners of the club, uh, Yuki Watanabe. <laughs> and uh, shout out to Yuki Watanabe. <laughs> I just saw him the other day in New York. And also Rudolph. Uh, I don't know Rudolph's last name. Rudolph is a famous uh, New York City club promoter by way of Germany. And he, he did Danceteria, which like is where like Madonna launched her career and all that wow. stuff. So uh, those are my bosses. And uh, we got like basically um, enough cachet that they were like, okay, yo, yo, you want to do your own party? And we were like, yeah. There was this girl who came in who just came from London, and she was like, oh, she was talking about raves that were already going on in England, and she was like, convinced the club that this was what was going to happen, and she was going to be the promoter. But like, we didn't even know what that was. You know, we're like, that stuff in England where people just get high in a warehouse. We were like, yeah, but she just came from London, so she didn't understand what was going on in New York, which was hip hop. That's all anyone wanted to say to hear. So we kind of like got the opportunity to promote with her, but we basically stole the the club away from her. And we went to the the owners and we're like, look, we got the basement. It's so it's small. It was about as big as my living room, you know. And I was like, listen, we want to play hip hop. And they're like, no hip hop, no no bad elements, no shootouts. And we're like, listen, we're not advertising this you know on on uh, in the hood this is for all the kids like us yeah all the skater kids yeah. all the fly girls who all hang out in washington square park every all the kids who are hanging out in washington square park are a and r for def jam or you know going to the joffrey ballet or skateboarders or models they're the coolest people like but we all want to listen to hip-hop just give us a chance yeah and they were like cool so we got this little thing together. We got this guy, Duke of Denmark, who was a famous um, DJ. Uh, DJ. Uh, was actually co- comes from Denmark and was actually a, fa- a famous breakdancer and mm-hmm. came to America because of his breakdancing skills in the 80s. And now was like kind of had a reputation as a house DJ, but on the DL was actually like an ill hip hop DJ and could like beat juggle and scratch and all that shit. And so we made him and he was stoked. He was like, I get to play hip hop in a club? And we were like, yes. And so like we did started just playing hip hop in this nightclub. And it was such a novel thing. People were like, 
are you kidding me? Like, this is a real, actual club? And we're like, yeah, we're playing hip-hop. And you can go to the other floors. And there's like... Other the, types of music. Yeah, there's the house music floor. And you can go to the VIP room. And, and you this know, is Mars. Yeah. So we started doing this trip parties at Mars. And... Was Mars like a seven night a week like party? Like yeah, it was. A, it was a. It was um. All right. Do you guys know in New York City now the meat market, yeah. the meat packing district? Yeah. So you know the Standard Hotel. Yeah. If you go past the Standard Hotel to the West Side Highway, there's a vacant lot. That's the building that used to be Mars. Oh, wow. It was a meat locker. It was five stories. Five stories, and it was just like a giant meat. They still had yeah. all the the the. the not the hooks, but the rails okay. that they would put the meat on and roll yeah. them with the meat. That was still on the ceiling. Was, and it, was it that in the Seinfeld episode? Yeah, <laughs> it is in the Seinfeld episode. That's Mars. Yeah. That's the club. Yeah. But that was after I left. That was like went right before the club closed. But that's the that's the that's Mars. So but that you know, so everyone was just like it became this like huge overnight sensation. Wow. It was like our, we got our 30 friends to come. The next week, there was like 150 people. The next week, there was like 500 people. Wow. And it spread like wildfire. Around that time, um, me and my partner, Beasley. So I had a skateboard graffiti writing friend, this black kid named Domini Beasley, rest in peace, who we, he, we lived right next to each other. And we were like skateboard graffiti writing compadres and would go all over the place. He and I were like the face of the of the party, you know. There were other people involved, Pandora, uh, who was Duke of Denmark's girlfriend. Um, I think that was about it. Uh, and but so we and and we literally have a table, just like a little folding table with the twelve hundred turntables out, and it's very small. I know every single person. It's like a house party, really, yeah. you know. And we're sitting there and getting ready to to do the night. And me and Beasley would do all the art and the passes, and we would use the the black and white copier to like we they had we found polaroid cameras we would take all the polaroid pictures of ourselves and our friends and then use the polaroid pictures and blow them up on the xerox machine to make this weird look of and then write on it and it was really cool really we really uh, the marketing was really dope but one day while we're doing this uh beasley finds a microphone and beasley's like this like Blonde-haired black guy uh, and a huge blonde-haired black. Well, guy? you know, he dyed his hair yeah. blonde, yeah. and uh, his mom was a famous, uh, uh, not a stripper, but like a, a burlesque. Cabaret. Yeah, well, a stripper. She's yeah. a stripper, but she's famous. <laughs> Lady Hennessy. You can go look her up online. She's like, uh, and like, so he was just like a wild kid. You know, I loved him to death. He's and, not a stripper, but yeah, yeah, yeah. He, she's a stripper. Yeah, yeah, she's a stripper. <laughs> But she's only in a, a spectacular sex act. Yeah. And um, so uh, so he finds this microphone and he's like, he's like, yo, we should take the microphone and rap tonight. And I'm like, I'm not rapping. And you don't know how to rap. And he's like, no, no, I'm, I, I got chops, so I'm going to make it happen. So we start the party up. It's going no on. No practice, pretense, nothing. Just no. straight out we, the club. We, Go to Duke, and we're like, Duke, we got it. Found a microphone, and it's literally like a dictation microphone, oh. like that you would plug in, not a real microphone. Yeah. And we're like, Duke, you want it? And he was like, all stoked, like, yeah, yeah, bring it down, bring it down. And he had like a funny, you know, Denmarkian accent, you know, <laughs> yes, bring it down, bring it down. So we bring down the mic, and then uh, Beasley's just like, yeah, yeah, 
I'm on the microphone. <laughs> it's just just terrible, you know? And our dumb friends see it and they're like, yeah, yeah, let me get it. And they're just rapping other people's raps, you know, like rock him. <laughs> rock him a say peace. You know, they're just saying, you know, EPMD rhymes. It's early forms of karaoke. Yeah, and, and it's terrible. We're all kind of just like huddled around laughing. And then this like, like middle-aged black guy, a little bit rotund, looking like kind of like maybe like a pimp very smooth with a pinky ring and a cocktail, just kind of comes over and he's like just standing around watching us all. <laughs> and we're like, who is this weird dude? And then he's like, can I, can I get on the mic? And we're like, uh, no. Uh, and he like won't go away, so we're finally like, okay. You know, we're like 20 years old, you know? Yeah. And this dude takes the mic and he's like, party people in the place to be. This is the almighty KG Cold Crush Brothers, Bronx representing. And we're like, what? And it's like one of the, it's KG from the Cold Crush Brothers. Like what? one of the very original wild style, in wild style. Like we're all like, what the fuck? And he just basically, Duke's freaking out, you know? We're all like, oh. And he just basically, Free as long as we keep giving him cocktails. Yeah. He, and he's not rapping. He's emceeing. Like it was an old school jam. So he's just sitting there with the microphone and being like, yeah, you know, and like someone would like, he turned off like, hey, you girls are pretty, like, what's your names? Like, I'm, you know, I'm Hillary and Cindy. Hillary and Cindy in the house looking super fly. Who else we got going on tonight? All right, everybody have a good time. Oh. And like knew the songs and like one song would end and like him and Duke got like into a whole DJ thing. And it was like, boom, we had like a 19, late 1970s park jam. Just boom, like that. And so we were, he knew every song that was being played. He's like, well, because there was only so many hip hop yeah. songs. There was, song. yeah, yeah. So like, so you know, they're playing, they're playing whatever few rap songs exist. <laughs> Public Enemy, you know, and then all the classics. The you know, um, uh, 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 Love is the Message and the Apache and the Mexican. All the like old classic breaks that yeah. he grew up on, and 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 he had his rhymes. And once in a while, he would. Spit for a little bit. I have audio of all this I could give you. Dude, oh my god. Yeah. yeah. I can't believe it. And again, this is just like the moronic nature of Skip Anglin giving me handmade decks yeah. and me skating them to death or not using them and then not really realizing what I was doing there either. Yeah. So there's like no video of any of this. There's very little audio recordings of it. Yeah. And so. <clears throat> the party gets so big that everyone from outside the club, now they all, uh, in the other floors, are yeah. all trying to get in. And the owners of the club realize, like, holy shit, like, we really got something here. I got to get some water home. Was, was the, uh, was, how many nights were you guys promoting at the club? I was promote. I was going out promoting like every, every night. single night. Every night. Yeah, but I was doing the party uh, Friday night. And actually... Now that so I think the about party it. was only on Friday nights? The party was one night, Friday night. Okay, wow. so you're doing one night a week, but you're promoting the club seven nights a week. Yeah, and actually the success of the club happened so fast that like I suddenly didn't really have to promote. Yeah. I they gave Show it to, up to Yeah. The, so this my whole life just immediately changes where the owners of the club are like, Okay, we're moving you to the second floor. Which is like the big main dance floor, and this was these rooms, these floors were made to for dancing. The floors were like parquet wood floors that were all polished, the entire thing, um, and it was just a, 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 the room was maximized, and the entire back wall were kicker boxes that they built into the wall. So if you went to the back, it looked like 
just like these weird gaps and, and hidden behind these baffles and and little vac I don't know what you call them holes. There were these giant base things. The so base was so bad. People would dare each other to sit on the base or get against the wall because it would make people shit was the, <laughs> you know. So we start doing this party. I could go into great de- detail about all this stuff, but uh, after all this, like, it becomes super popular. Um, uh, I, I started coming home and I used to, like, on Fridays get, like, you know, 40 messages and it would be like, hey, it's Dave Schechter, put me on plus one. You know, now I'm coming home and my mom's like, what the fuck? And the answering machine is like blinking 99. Wow. And I'd have like 150, I'm just making lists and all this stuff is going on. Um, then we are, uh, at this point we had the DJ booth. Again, the DJ was not... Tucked in the corner. At the yeah, he's tucked in the corner. This DJ booth is literally behind the bar up in the ceiling. So you'd have to go under the bar, walk behind the liquor, and then up these stairs to a, a upper... Thing so the DJ could look at the crowd, yeah. and then he could make a decision of what music to play. So that's where Duke and KG are up in the corner, and me and Beasley are at the party one night, and Duke's doing his thing, and then I just start hearing like, you know, uh, the cool cheap fucker. I don't drink fucker. I keep a bag of cheaper inside my locker, and we're like, that's not KG. And then like I go to the bar and I look up and it's fucking DMC from Run DMC. No it's way. just rhyming with KG all night long. And I'm like, yo, telling everybody, everyone comes to the bar. Everyone's looking over the bar. The bartenders are getting pissed off. Get these fucking people away from the bar. Everyone's like, go, go, go. And they're up there doing this whole thing. And then we're like, we got to move the DJ down to the ground. So we we, uh, make a long story short. Uh, the the room is so bouncy, like we're like jumping up and down, the records are skipping, and I'm looking around the room, which used to be a meat market, and I look in the corner, and there's like a, a five foot tall, eight eighteen hundreds era safe, you know, like one of those giant yeah. wrought iron, must weigh half a ton. Yeah, it's there, it's never moving. Yeah, <laughs> I roll it to the other side put the turntables on it and then we're playing records and everyone's jumping up and down and it won't skip. So then they had these little go-go boxes for like go-go dancer girls that were just like little tiny three foot square cubes. And I just like slide them all against the thing and suddenly there's like a little stage, but it's just three foot box in the crowd. So that once the DMC thing happened, it was like every rapper in New York City started showing up. Wow. So Duke with DJ. KG was the MC, Almighty KG from the Cold Crush Brothers, and then like there's Q-Tip, there's you know EPMD, there's Public Enemy, wow. there's KRS-One, Ev- anyone you can name, they all came, every, every single one. And it was all word of mouth by then. All word of mouth, yeah. never paid anyone a dime, and they wow. would all get up on stage. The people who were coming in, they were paying like twenty bucks to get in. I mean, like you said, no one was playing hip hop. Yeah. So the, that was the only avenue to yes get in front of people and show off. Yeah, regularly. Yeah. yeah, show off. And they would line up like it was like because you know here's the safe with the with the turntables. There's KG and Duke right behind there, and then there's like this row like about like a twenty foot long row of boxes. So they would all be standing up almost like the usual suspects. Yeah. And they would it was like they were lined up to take their turns. And then the next guy would go, yeah, and then they'd finish, rock him, and then he'd jump off, you know, hand the mic, and then Q-Tip would come up. So it's turning almost into a live concert. Yeah, it was insane. There's no way in the world you could ever set out to make this happen. It just organically happened. Then the next 
phase of my life is that um, Paul Middleman, who I'm sure you know, yeah. he used to surf for him, yeah. and he ran Stussy. He, uh, or was the design director for Stussy, but he was working with Sean Stussy. This is like 1991. So, how did Sean Stussy find him? Yeah, I actually, if you go and look at my uh, podcast, I mean, if you listen to my, watch my show on Uproxx, I just interviewed him. We just dropped it yesterday. He tells it in great detail how it happened. Paul Middleman's family in that new wave 80s had, you know, back in the new wave 80s in New York, people shopped at thrift shops. Yeah. So there was this, a group of thrift shops in New York that sold, you know, used cargo pants, used jeans, overcoats. Pins, checkerboard, you know, Madonna clips and shit, new wave day glow t-shirts, anything that was new wave 80s was to be found at these series of stores, um, uh, Zoot and uh, Canal Jean Co. and Unique Boutique and Pandemonium. Paul's family owned Pandemonium. So he already had like, but they were just selling stuff. So he, again, when that Lucy Surfateria kind of era was popping off. He was on the off. pulse of style and individuality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, he was like a Lucy Surfateria regular. So they had some kind of uh, surf convention showing down in Atlantic City. Went down there and saw Sean Stussy just w- when he first started, like with a couple of t-shirts. And was like, oh, your stuff's dope. I know your surfboards. You should sell in my parents' store. Got to meet him, and then he was like, come up to New York with me. So they went to New York and started going out, and then they became friends. And before Paul, Stussy was just Sean Stussy in Newport or wherever he's from. Yeah. You know? And then uh, when Paul came into the mix, suddenly it was like, okay, we're going to start bringing Stussy into the street with the writing. And then, you know, there's the famous pictures of all the guys. It's kind of hip-hop. Yeah. There's a black guy in the end. Yeah. You know? Rastafarian. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, it's 1991, um, Paul, uh, you know, Paul's been giving me, you know, I grew up skating with him and he's kind of sponsored me my whole life. And my party's the party. So I'm like, we should do a Stussy party. And he's like, yeah. And like, Sean Stussy goes and makes an an invite. So it's like handmade, Sean Stussy's writing, come to the international meeting of the Stussy tribe at Trip, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, great. I'm so stoked. I mean, this is like gold back then like I've got passes made by Sean Stussy for my party I'm running around the city passing these things out like I'm the you gotta come Stussy dope then I come to the work Friday to set up and all the guys who work there are like dude you got like a hundred boxes so I go upstairs and there's all these t-shirts from Stussy they just went without asking me without consulting me they just made all these Stussy t-shirts first annual inter- international meeting of the Stussy tribe or whatever You're and me. no and i'm just through just throwing Stussy shirts away little do i know that in the crowd is russell simmons okay owner of def jam records and he sees me and paul and this crew and promoting this kick-ass club throwing right. out t-shirts. Right. So clearly we know Stussy. Yeah. Clearly we know how to make t-shirts. Yeah. And clearly kids love us. Yeah. At that time on West Broadway, there was this boutique called Baguda, owned by Mark Baguda. And it was directly around the corner from this store called Union, mm-hmm. uh, which was owned by James Jebbia, who goes on later to start Supreme. At this time, James just has this little... 20 by 20 foot store and he had the exclusive rights to sell Stussy. Yeah. So it was called Stussy Union 
and that was the only place to get Stussy. So all the kids would hang out, and, and there would be frequently lines of kids. Too many kids wait outside. And, you know, it was in this world. But Mark Baguda, selling, you know, $1,000 Dolce & Gabbana dresses, notices all the kids are hanging around the Stussy store. Russell Simmons, at this time, is always trying to date models. And he's taking all the model girls to the Dolce & Gabbana place to show them that he has money. And Mark Baguda is like, listen, you own Def Jam and you do hip hop music and you, you've got a name with the kids. This clothing company, Stussy's killing it. Um, you can do something here. Like there's yeah. business to be had. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll give it some thought. That's when he sees all of us doing the Stussy party. Also, there was a friend of ours who passed away, Dominic Trenier, who knew all of us and knew Russell and kind of uh, negotiated all of this stuff. So Paul Middleman, Ali Asha, Jabril, Awurka Moore, and myself all get hired by Russell to go start a clothing line that, regardless of what happens, has to be called Fat, P-H-A-T. So we go there, and, um, you know, that's a huge opportunity for us. So, so that was... Uh... A stipulation. Yes. Yeah. Russell Simmons. Or Ru- Russell Simmons. Russell Simmons yeah. said, "You're going to start a company, but it's got to be called Fat." Yes. And, we, and we're all sitting there. We're all everyone saying "Fat" at the time. Yo, that's yeah. Fat. But we're, I, we were at like, we got to change the name, man. We can't call it Fat. He's like, "It's got to be called Fat." And I was like, "No one's going to be saying Fat in ten years." Yeah. He goes, no one says deaf anymore, but I got deaf jam records. And I'm like, okay, I can't, can't argue with that. So it, be, it became like, how do we make this work? Um, and ultimately, we decided that like, he wanted to do like a naughty by nature, jail suits kind of thing. Um, but and we wanted to do like a polo, uh, Tommy Hilfiger street kind of type of thing, which no one was doing at the time. Yeah. And so we ultimately uh, went on to do uh, Fat Farm because that was like the compromise. Yeah. At least the farm seems like it's kind of out in the country. And Fat Farm, you know, it's, it, it was funny. Anyway, so we went with that. <laughs> and he liked it, obviously. Yeah, he, everything went good. It was a, that's a whole other crazy adventure. We didn't know how to make clothes. And, um, you know. Yeah, I, I was just uh, it was formulating a, my question of like, okay, here he is. Uh, a music producer, sure, right? Yeah, and he sees these kids who were—you didn't know anything about T-shirts. No, you were just throwing it out into the crowd, and yeah. you were affiliated with the street where, sort of, yeah, Stussy wasn't really streetwear yet. Well, that was that didn't exist, but it it was the beginning of streetwear. Yeah, yeah, and and automatically, he looks at you guys of like, hey. Either. They're onto something. You're onto nothing. <laughs> well, you know, when we, when we started doing it... They're that, killing it, but not in... Yes. Uh, run, a, run a clothing brand. I think in his mind, he just thought, like... Uh, like, I guess from his point of view, if I go to... If I, if, I, if I sign some rappers and a DJ, I know they know how to rap yeah. and DJ. Yeah. So if I'm getting these kids who apparently had made T-shirts, <laughs> they must know how to make T-shirts. But I knew how to wear T-shirts, yeah. you know. Um, but I, I never, I didn't, I wouldn't even know how to get T-shirts manufactured. In fact, all the T-shirt graphics that I had ever done up to that point for Shut and for other various brands, 
that burnt, the companies went and made yeah. it. Yeah. I didn't do that. You, you created the art and you handed it off. Exactly. It. Yeah. So when we met him, is, you know, he was like, okay, let, guys, let me see some ideas. And Ali Asha and myself, you know, we can draw because we yeah. write graffiti. So we went and got black books and we just did sketches of like dudes wearing fucking five panel hats and shilling jackets and cargo pants and boots. So he's like, oh yeah, this stuff's dope. And, we, and there was a conversation like, listen, none of us went to fashion school. Like we're letting you know we need somebody who knows how to get this yeah. made. And we went through a bunch of different people, but it was all just like no one really knew what they were doing. Um, we, had, we hired like a couple of people who'd come in claimed that they knew what they were doing, had a fashion degree, but at the end of the day, like, knew nothing about manufacturing, manufacturing yeah. yeah, or getting anything made. We've had one guy... They faked it until they got kicked out. Exactly, yeah. And, and lots of stupid, funny things happened. Like, we uh, wanted to make... The first thing we knew we wanted to make were the M65 yeah. army Bomber. jackets. Yeah. So we, like, went and got an M65 jacket, gave it to a place to make samples of it, and um, we were like, oh, good, let's go over and look at it. So we go over to the design room, and this is how new we were. When they mock something up first try, they use it canvas, you know, like just like the cheapest unwashed, not white, like a cream-colored raw canvas. And we come in, and they have this M65 jacket in raw canvas. And me and I are like, that is fucking dope. <laughs> it's over. Yeah. And they were like, really? And we're like, yeah. And like, so what do you want? We're like, we need like 50 of these different sizes, all just canvas with a patch. You know, we made like a patch or something. And they were, for the time, it was like dope, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so so Russell was like, okay, cool. He spent all the money making these canvas things. And then we uh, the order was done. The guy who was doing like our liaison went and put them <coughs> in the truck and then went down to Fat Farm. We had a store that was being built on Prince Street. And it, I think at this point, people were becoming aware that Russell Simmons was making a clothing line, especially in the garment district in New York. Jackets never showed up. They, someone stole them huh? off the, the first things we ever made. Vanished. Literally like the mob fell off a truck. Wow. You know? And that might have been because maybe we weren't greasing the right palms or because we didn't know what we were doing. But Russell was losing his mind. Like, we're not going to have anything done. And he didn't work out of an office. He had offices, Rush Communications, Def Jam offices, you know, with like actual employees and shit. But he, there was a, like the cool guy restaurant was this place called Time Cafe. And it was in the lot, it was in the ground floor of the building he had the penthouse of. So it was when, hangout. yeah. So when cell phones came out, he always had the corner booth and he would just come downstairs whenever he woke up and he'd just sit there, take meetings all day. You know, they'd bring him wine and whatever else, drinks or Coke or I don't know, whatever. Um, and he would just sit on the phone. So when we'd have to go meet him, we would go to Time Cafe. So we'd go to Time Cafe and sit there. And it was really glamorous. I mean, especially when you're like 20 years old. Yeah. You know, it's like... Russell Simmons. Russell bar. Simmons. Yeah. You're sitting with like, fam like, you know, famous actors and, and, you know, rappers. And you're like the hot new kid on the block. And he's got a bulletproof Rolls Royce outside with bodyguards. And we're rolling around in his Rolls Royce. And like, you know, it was dope. Like, yeah. I was super lucky. But, you know, it's getting to the point where it's like me and my friends are like... Listen, like, there's only so many graffiti characters we could draw. Like, we're running out of, you know, ideas here. We're not going to get anything made. And he's starting to panic. He realizes, like, we're just a bunch of idiots who just have a good sense of style, really. Yeah. And um, 
these two Jewish guys in business suits come over to the table and they're like, you're Russell Simmons, we love you. And Russell's like, yeah, yeah, it's whatever, guys. And they're like, take out their business cards. Like, yeah, we're this and that. And we own this clothing company in Canada called Roots. We're like the largest clothing manufacturer in Canada. We're like, sit down, man. <laughs> we're starting a clothing line and we don't know what we're doing. And we explain it to them in like three minutes and they just stop us. And they're like, stop. We've got complete facilities in Toronto. We have design teams. We've got grading. We have an entire factory. We've got everything you fucking need. Yeah. They're like, just fly up and it's done. And they're like, we will do anything to work with you. So like the next day, th this whole... And it was so insane, like, the, how little all of us knew. I mean, this is really, like, the blind leading the blind. So Russell's like, we're going to Canada tomorrow morning. I'm picking you up at 5 a.m. And I'm like, all right. So at 5 a.m., here comes this, like, bulletproof Rolls Royce. <laughs> we get in the car, drive to JFK, get out. I don't, I, I don't have a passport at this point, but I don't need it to go to Canada at that time. Russell's on the cell phone. First of all, no one had cell phones at the time. And no one in the world ever saw a black guy on a cell phone in an airport screaming. You know, that's all he did. So we're like going through customs. We get, fly to Canada, land there at like 8 a.m. They pick us up in a car, um, get to the offices at 9, meet everybody, do the introductions. They give us a crash course on how to design clothes. We stay there. They take us out to dinner. We fly back to New York. I get back to my apartment at 10. <clears throat> Russell's like, all right, I'm picking up tomorrow at 5 a.m. We got to go back. <laughs> what? Yeah. And he did this like three or four times wow. where I'm just like going to bed, freaking out like, oh, my God, what is he doing? And finally, we're like, can you just get us a hotel room? Like, I can't take all this flying, man, you know? So we get the hotel room and then, you know, everything calms down and we get the clothes made and it goes on to be a success. But how long were you... At Fat Farm. Well, that was a whole other crazy story. So <laughs> I was at Fat Farm for uh, like two or three years. But after the initial, you know, hit that it had, I was like, and this is also how dumb I was. Like, you're like, I don't know the money. It, it, it turns out Russell invested millions of his own dollars into keeping this thing going, you know? Yeah. It's just more and more of an investment. Uh, at the time, I was like, damn it, man. Like, he... I'm just his employee. Like, I don't have a share. I came up with the fucking name. Like, I did all the logos. Yeah. I came up with the identity, and I'm just, like, getting a paycheck. This guy's owning this awesome company. That's what my dumb brain was at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was at that 20 time. 20 years old. Yeah. And at that time, that's when Rodney, who started Shut and is now, you know, lost everything. He's like, I'm starting a new skateboard company. It's going to be called Zoo York, and you're going to be the designer, and we got to go get money. And I was like, all right. I was like, yeah, I'm, I know how to make clothes now. I know how to get stuff manufactured. I need to have ownership of something. And then the last missing part was trying to get financing. It turns out that one of Russell Simmons' partners, his son, ended up working with us in, in the office as the office manager. And then I was like, on the sly, like, yo, you want to start a skateboard company with us? He was like, yeah, man. So, like, he got together the money and we just, like, tried to guerrilla tactics start zoo york you know so we spent all of our money getting a warehouse because that's what you do <laughs> <laughs> so you thought so you thought yeah and you know that's where we were going to store all the skateboards but um didn't have money for computers or stuff like that but i'm still working at fat farm 
So I would work at Fat Farm till, you know, to be the diligent worker doing Fat Farm graphics, six o'clock, seven o'clock, and then finally the everyone leaves, and then finally the receptionist is like, all right, I'm going by, I'm by, I've got more graphics to do. Then, eh, like, they're gone, come in. And yeah. then we'd all come into the Fat Farm offices, switch the discs. No. no, and I would just do fat, Zoo York graphics, and also like con. Were you getting paid pretty well though? Yeah, uh, at first I, I, I mean, listen, at the money I was making when I started was more money than I thought I'd ever make. You know, uh, uh, you know, I think it was paid fairly, and then there was like a, a big mix-up with somebody got fired, and they were they they were disgruntled, and they stole all the designs, and I, I, I think at that point I was like working freelance. Oh, they forced me to go work freelance. Um, and then uh, after this guy screwed them over, um, they were like fucked. They had like a month to redesign the whole line. And then Russell like came like <clears throat> freaking out, like in tears, like, you got to fucking help me, man. I'm not going to have any clothes. So like I was like, okay. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. <laughs> and I made like this most insane amount of money. I forget what it for the time. It, it was something to like each graphic was like five thousand dollars. It was something so ridiculous <laughs> in that time period's money. Yeah, and yeah. I remember just like making a graphic and like pinning it on the wall, being like cha ching, cha ching. Like I just <laughs> totally made a. He was so mad. And actually, this goes into another funny story. So I love it. I so love it. the the lady who was like trying to say the the production manager OT Otelia, she was like you know telling him like. We need more graphics. He's got to do this. He's got to do this because she knew what we needed to make the line work. And he knew how much he was paying me. So he'd come into the office and see all the graphics and be like, God damn it. He was like, you're making, you're costing me too much money because he, you know, I was raping him, you know. And then, um, (laughs) this is 100% true. (laughs) So he he comes in and he like, he comes in and he comes into my office and he's like, listen, we're starting a girl's line. And I was like, I know, we've been talking about this forever. What, what are we going to call it? He was like, it's either going to be called Honey Dips or it's going to be called Baby Fat. And I was like, I like Baby Fat. And he was like, yeah, I like Baby Fat too. He was like, all right, I need a logo. I was like, when? He was like, I have a meeting for 20 minutes and then I have to go somewhere with the logo. So you have to come up with a logo in 20 minutes. Holy pressure. And I was like, wait a minute, man. Like, that's not a graphic. First of all, that's a corporate identity. And that's going to cost you way more. Yeah. And then he lost it. He was like, I'm paying you so much money. Like, you're totally raping me. You've got to hook me up. And I was like, all right, all right, fair. If, if, I, if 20 minutes is what it takes, I'm going to give you a 20-minute corporate identity. He was like, fine. But it's for free. And I was like, it's for free. It's my gift to you in 20 minutes. So I went and sat there. And I was like, okay. I got 20 minutes to make a, a logo. And I was like, Holy what? Shit. What? What? It hasn't been used. You know, what hasn't been used? And I was like... Have you been stewing on it before? Like, no. at all? Just straight- I made a Honey Dips logo, and it was like a honey pot. And it said Honey Dips, but I didn't like it. So I'm like, what hasn't been used? And I was like, Izod has the alligator. You know, Polo's got the pony. And I was like, what's like a good feminine yeah. thing that would translate? I was like, how about a cat? And I was like, I can't believe no one's used a cat for their corporate, for their logo on clothes. And I was like, well, let's maybe, let me give it a try. So I drew three cats. I drew like the silhouette of like a cat on a fence. I drew uh, like a cute kind of Hello Kitty cat. And then I drew the baby fat cat, which was like the little wispy lines, yeah. you know? And then I picked three fonts, baby fat, kind of modern, 
whatever, another baby fat, and then the script, lowercase baby fat. And then he came in 20 minutes later, right on, right as I finished, and I was like, okay, we got three logos and three fonts. Which ones do you like? And we both sat there and we were like, I was like, I like this one with that. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, all right, that's it. And he was like, that's it? And I was like, that's it. That's the, that's the identity is the little wispy cat with the lowercase baby fat. Printed it out, gave it to him, he hit the road. And that's it. The, that was the, my freebie. And that thing haunted me for like 10 years. I would go to like drive throughs at McDonald's and the lady handing me the food would have the baby fat cat on her cleavage, you oh know. Oh like, my god. <laughs> it was crazy. That thing really had a life of its own. That's yeah. freaking nuts. Yeah. I love it. Dude, what an amazing story. So, so you're doing your double dipping. Yep. Yeah. And oh yeah. You you had after hours right. at at at, at that, Fat Farm. Fat Farm Brewing, right. Zoo York. Who else came huh. over after hours to help or do stuff? Rodney Smith and Adam, and then a bunch of the skaters. Jeff Pang, Peter Hahn, Kevin Kessler. Uh, you know, anyone who skated for us. But usually the skaters were skating, so they would kind of come over just to hang out. and Drink like some beers, smoke some weed. No, one, not really. Maybe <laughs> smoke some weed, but I, I, I can't smoke weed and work, so... I would just—I'm like a coffee achiever. Yeah. I'm just constantly drinking coffee. But um, you know, it was—it was—it was just I had a lot of energy then. So just like work, work, work. One day I worked three days without sleeping, just <laughs> drinking coffee, like trying to get something accomplished. Um, and then, and then Zoo finally like started doing good, and we could afford all the computer equipment. And then I quit Fatform. Did you guys start Hard Goods and like Printables at the same time? Or? We did Hard Goods. Hard Goods was the core of it. And core. that was like a big problem because um, the whole skateboard industry was in California. Yeah. No one was making boards. Seven ply decks. Yeah, no York. one's making boards other places. So Rodney and Greg Chapman, who owns Chapman Skateboards, they basically were like, we're going to be the East Coast focal point for skateboard manufacturing. And literally, like, bought a hand-cranked, you know, pneumatic press to press the laminated wood. And Rodney just kind of rigged it with, like, everything he knew from his years going to California. And it was just, like, again, like, we're just making something from the ground up. Trying to make skateboards that molds and cut out shapes. And then how to silkscreen the boards. We couldn't figure that out. And the California companies wouldn't tell us. Yeah. Like, we'd fly to L.A. and, like, go down to, like, World Industries, and, like, they're all our friends, and we'd hang out with, like, everyone and be like, hey, can we see the silk screening room? And they're like, yeah, yeah, but, like, would never take us there because they knew we couldn't figure out how to silk screen over a whole board, you know, because of the bends in the, in the board. Actually, it ended up being just completely obvious, but, you know, it was just it was just a lot of, like, ups and downs and getting things done, and, you know, during that time, I was just getting more and more into surfing. Yeah. Uh, uh, and just that, I got a car and I would just drive out to Rockaway or Long Beach and would just surf more than I would skate. I was kind of skating mini ramp a lot and surfing. That was like my thing. Yeah. But I have to tell you, uh, I really feel now that I've sort of totally converted into surfing mm-hmm. that skate, for at least for me, skateboarding really ruined my surfing skills. Oh, really? Yeah. I felt like, well... I wasn't a great skateboarder, but I was a full-on skateboarder. Well, did you surf first school. or did you skate first? Skated first. You did? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, I started skateboarding in third grade and was like super into it all the way through high school. Where were you skating? Just street. Yeah. Yeah, and then skate parks too, mm-hmm. like Paramount Skate Park and 
Lakewood Skate Park. Oh, this is a long time ago. Yeah. I thought it was... They didn't have a lot of skate parks, but everybody had a long tramp, quarter pipe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, some had half pipes, but we would just find out where they're building houses and go steal wood after hours. Yeah, yeah. Jump the fence, you know, that's what kids did. See, you guys were crooks, too. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. So, going back to Fat Farm, it got to be a a multi-million dollar business. Yeah, yeah. It's like a $300 million company. Damn. Yeah. And then you got out like what, two or three years? Uh, yeah, I think I was like three years in. But I mean, it, 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 I was still just an employee. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is like $300 million in sales. Yeah. Right. So what does that equate to? And how much debt are you in? You know, yeah. it's like yeah. uh, only Russell Simmons knows the answer to that. Yeah. Yeah. But that was an incredible like internship learning oh, yeah. stage of. How to how to build a company yeah. from ground from ground up? Yeah. So when you started New York, you you guys knew okay, we need yeah. the printables, we need to source here, you need to do that. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I mean, look, nowadays anybody who's like in grade school and they draw a picture can go online and order as many T-shirts as they want with yeah. their graphic. Yeah. But that was like even getting T-shirts made was like a nightmare. We like. Um, you know, like big graphics were kind of dying out, like right when Supreme was opening and the little tiny Supreme box logo, mm-hmm. like the three or four inch logo in the center. That was kind of what was like cool. Mm-hmm. So when we started at a zoo, our Fat Farm silk screener, the guy who made all the t-shirts for Fat Farm, um, uh, uh, Keith Miller, he, I went to him and I was like, listen, we got a little bit of money. We're starting a skateboard company. Can you print us some t-shirts? cook us up with a deal he was like yeah fine so we made all these little graphics that were this big and i printed them out on 11 by 17 pieces of paper so there are these massive pieces of paper with like a little logo in the middle and that's what i gave them and he was like oh these graphics look great can't wait to make you a t-shirt i'm like cool gave it out can't wait it comes back a couple weeks later open up the boxes he blew all the t-shirt graphics up to fit the entire shirt, Ugh. like like Frankie goes to Hollywood, you know, oh, yeah. just, just say yes to oh, life. Flew it, and we were like, "What are you doing?" And he oh, was like, no. "You wanted them that size? No one wants graphics that size. They want them all over the shirt." And I was like, "No," you know. Oh my! And everyone was like, "Oh my god, these graphics are so big, man!" You know. And then that was sort of like even even at that point, like here I thought I was, you know. Kind of had a grasp on the industry, but that's when I was immediately like, every time I'm sending Something. any workout, I'm I have to imagine that I'm sending it out to the dumbest person alive, yeah. you know, and be like three inches, it yeah. is placed here, you know. Nothing lost in translation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That is so crazy. Yeah. Epic. Yeah, and then I got to meet you. Yeah, I start late mid late nineties. I don't know. I said mid nineties, ninety five, ninety six. Yeah, I started coming out to Huntington. Because of uh, 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 what's Travis, his name? Travis. Travis. Travis Marshall, who was going out with Mikey. Yeah. I saw Mikey. She's my neighbor. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah she Ooh. lives on the beach right down the street here. Crazy. Yeah. And, um, you know, got my sort of... Uh, taste of... Taste of, like, real pro surfers and pro surfing. <laughs> yeah. It was really amazing, you know. There's, no, there's nobody... Like, surfing in New York... I mean, nowadays, there's, like, Balaram and, you know, people... Are, the, the caliber has gone yeah. way high. Everywhere. But, yeah. Yeah. But um, back then, it was just, like, what you saw in magazines and whatever little surf videos you got. Yeah. And once in a while, I got to, like, 
I actually got to skate um, <clears throat> right when we started Fat Farm. My friend Jeremy Henderson is like, hey, I'm coming over with some friends. Let's go skating. I was like, okay. And he comes over with Christian and Nathan Fletcher. Nice. And they're like, yeah, let's all go skating. And I was like, oh, knew who they were from surfing. You know, and I was like, yo, I'm a huge fan. They're like, yeah, we want to skate New York, man. And so we went on this whole like all night skate session. And it was like really kind of, even at that point, it was mind opening a little bit because, yeah. you know, like I definitely at this point have been skating with pro skateboarders. Yeah. But, not you know, surfer skaters. Not surfer skaters. <clears throat> and like even like pros, like I'd go skate with whoever, like John Cardiel or whoever. And it was definitely skating like yeah. we're gonna go find the obstacle we're all gonna try and kick flip the stairs or do the front side blunt slide on the ledge whatever and then the i gotta get more water then the um <laughs> the fletchers showed up and it was like as soon as we went out they just were like non-stop skating it was like they were skating like they were surfing yeah. So they were just like going down the curbs and jumping and trying tricks and not making them and doing power slides and carbs and like wouldn't stop. And it was really weird for me. Like it was the first time hanging out with pro surfers yeah. and I was skateboarding with them. So it was like me and Jeremy Henderson, we took them to West Broadway and there were all these like manual boxes, but were made out of steel, metal. And, um, you know, I've been skating there my whole life and my whole life was just push, 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 kick, flip, do a manual, try to do a 180 out, fall, go back to A, just go again, go back to A, go again, go back to A. Like, that was skating, yeah, you know? Repetitive. Trying to do the tricks. To, yeah. These guys were just like, you know, push, 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 ollie up, power slide, boneless off, skate into the curb, push, 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 go across the street, ollie up the stairs, do a boneless, go, you know, just like, I'm like, what the fuck are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. But it's very different. Yeah. different you got to move, you gotta, you're looking at everything as an yeah. know, and that was, angle on, on skateboarding. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why I said, I was telling, uh, 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 help me out here, man. I want to say Lyndon. Yeah. All right, good. Thank God. <laughs> God. He, so he rambled off too many names today. No. Yeah, it's true. So, um, so the uh, so skateboarding kind of fucked up my surfing because yeah. I always approached it with whatever skateboarding skill set that I had. The the the, the quarter pipe never moves. Yeah, you know, it took me years of of surfing to finally just be like, you know, you have to almost not think about what yeah. you're doing and kind of just. Say, oh, the yeah. lip's crumbling. I gotta get around it somehow. Yeah, and just you're have... going A to B, straight yeah. to the end of the wave, and trying to do your your air closeout turn. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. that's yeah. what I was trying to do, and it does not work. You know, you're like, wait, you just missed all these opportunities through the whole wave. Like, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I, and, I, and I also learned that watching you surf when I went to um, Huntington Beach, but like, yeah, that's how it was. Also, you know, skating a lot of it is stomping tricks, yeah. tray flip. You do a tray flip, you want to catch it and know you caught it and stomp it. Yeah. And I brought a lot of that to surfing. So I would like go up on the lip and like put all my weight on the board and then just sink the board through the lip, yeah. you know. And um, it actually wasn't until I started surfing in Hawaii that that actually could work. Yeah. Like where you could put all of your energy into the lip and like not destroy the wave. Um, and I remember I was surfing with you in a HB and it was like an idyllic summer's session and you were in shorts and you were taking out on like outside waves at the end of the pier and like coming in and like 
uh, and like doing all this crazy stuff and then you saw me looking at you and you were like hey Eli check this out while you were surfing and like went switch stance and then did a cutback and I was like fucking look at this guy man and switches I love about skateboarding yeah I know but it was and it was so casual yeah. you know I was just like man I'm never gonna get good at this yeah. there's just I've just missed my opportunity I used to go switch a lot when and I was a kid I or, hate to say girl. this but we gotta cut this off no mm. Dude, it's already 327. Why? At we need to do two. two? Come back. I got more stuff to talk about. Don't you about. think? I think we got to get going because you got to get back by five. Yeah. Yeah. 30. Or you could save this and do it, come, do it later. It's up to you guys. You know what? I um, love talking to you and you're always welcome to come here. Bro, we need to do this because honestly, we, we just got to the point of Zoo York and yeah. we haven't even talked about <laughs> your movies. Oh, yeah. I mean, dude, you, you I mean, you got a whole, like, it's like, it's like me, pro surfing was a whole, like, lifetime ago. Yeah. And then after pro surfing, there's a whole new, so you have, yeah. we're just getting into, like, Zoo York, and then we have a whole nother, <laughs> whole another life of and this, Eli. I'm happy, I'm happy to do it, guys. The Californian. Okay. Yeah. All right, we're going to, we're going to uh, stop here because we, we got to get out and back to Huntington. Good. Listen to, um, listen, listen to this uh, quick break with our, our sponsors and we'll be right back. <laughs> Is that no, really for real? But serious, we're going to, we're going to stop here. Yeah, it's totally fine. So and, I, it's a lot to talk, talk about. Dude, and it's cool. So like, much. I mean, we love the little, <clears throat> all the little stories within the, like, yeah. the big picture yeah. because that's. Yeah, that's what it's about. And you guys have sponsors for real. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Good. Yeah. I hope you're making some money. Not no. Yet. <laughs> We're just friend sponsors. All right. We're just like Gessner, episode one. Yeah. Cut off here. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please give us a five star rating and spread the word. Special thanks to our good friends, James Williams for our awesome artwork and Justin Reynolds for the amazing music.